Jurgis too had heard of America. That was a country where they said a man might earn three rubles a day. And Jurgis figured what three rubles a day would mean with prices as they were where he lived and decided forthwith that he would go to America and marry and be a rich man in the bargain. In that country, rich or poor, a man was free, it was said. He did not have to go into the army. He did not have to pay out his money to rascally officials. He might do as he pleased and count himself as good as any other man. Neil, how are you doing this fine afternoon? Pretty good. I have uh, some, is this French rosé? I believe it is. Yeah. It's rosé. It's at least labeled as French rosé. Always- <laughs> it could be, you know, like LaCroix, yeah. right, which is made in Ohio or something. Yeah, or Michigan, I think, is where it was. Yeah. Yeah, Michigan. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was shocked when I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> which is actually why it's called LaCroix and not LaCroix, right? Yeah. Because it's true. It's American, it's the American style. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm doing good. It's a beautiful sunny day. It is a beautiful sunny day. We are being very bougie and drinking rosé while having our rosé. Cheers. All day. Cheers. <laughs> Had to mix it up from the tea and mushroom coffee and other wonderful things. Yeah. This is our second wine episode. Uh, I, I want to say third or something. something I know like Discipline that. and Punish was yeah. another wine episode. And then we had the recap episode, which was Irish coffee yeah. with <laughs> Bailey's. Yep. That was quite fun. That was great. Yeah, that was a good time. That was delicious. It was delicious. Yeah. 10 out of 10, what I recommend. Yeah, today we're doing rosé, I guess. Uh, it has nothing to do with the actual episode no, itself. No, it's just, <laughs> seemed like a good idea. Especially with the weather outside, it was it was a rosé. Well, and we've been remote for the last couple of weeks. Yeah. So we had to you know, celebrate being in person again. Reunited in person. Yep. Yes. Um, and the book we're doing today, if you can tell from your title, is The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Yeah, this was a fun one when you suggested it because I had never read it. And I feel like a lot of people read it in middle school or high school. This would be a tough book to read in middle school, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Well, it, I feel like, too, it's not the late vocabulary is that hard. It's more just the content of the story is pretty dark. Yeah. Very dark. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also, I feel like some of the intention of the book gets missed when you read it younger and from the way the book is portrayed. Yeah. Right. Because. I had always heard of it as a book about the terrors of the meat industry, right? Which is kind of how it got branded. Right. <laughs> but that's really a small subsection of the book. Yeah, that's like the theme he's using. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not even the theme because I mean- It's not even the theme. Yeah. yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> the protagonist works in like a bunch of different industries. Meat's just one part of it. I guess maybe it was the early part of the book. Yeah. And that gets, uh, maybe people only read the beginning yeah. or something. They, they only read the beginning and they got so disgusted, they just stopped there, <laughs> went home. But it had, especially from the meatpacking side, it had a, a massive impact, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because it had this in the intro. So I'll just read this. It says, in June- 1906, four months after the publication of The Jungle, the Pure Food and Drugs Act and the Meat Inspection Act were passed by Congress. And, um, you know, from Wikipedia, at least, and from other websites on the internet, it seems that the book had a big impact on that, Yeah, at least in the public perception of it. And you could totally see why. We'll get to some of the quotations from the book, but there are just some nasty things in here. <laughs> oh, yeah. But yeah, I think you're right. It's a book that a lot of people have probably heard of. Reminded me of like, you know, so I've never read Uncle Tom's Cabin, but everybody has heard of that book. Right. This book, I feel like is in a similar category where it's like, we've definitely heard of it. I read it for the first time, I think in 2014 or 2015. Um, it was recommended to me by somebody. And I definitely go through phases. Like sometimes I go in these hyper-capitalist, like libertarian-esque mo- moods. And then there are times where I'm like more on the like, yeah, the government exists for like actual things. And this was definitely during 
Um, basically, I try to like balance out my reading, I guess, is what I mean by these moods, right? So I think I had just finished reading Seeing Like a State. Okay. And then I was talking about it with somebody and they were like, you know, have you read The Jungle? And it's an interesting like, because Seeing Like a State is not quite a libertarian book, but it shows like the problems with top down. Mm-hmm. This kind of like almost shows the problems with pure uh, laissez-faire yeah. economic system, right? Bottom up. So it was a good counterpoint to it. And then, of course, Atlas Shrugged is one of my favorites. And this is a great counterpoint to Atlas Shrugged as well. Yeah, from two episodes ago. Yep. So I think that was where it getting where you suggesting it in the queue. Yeah, made sense, too, because it was like, all right, we did this very hyper capitalist book. So now <laughs> right. we'll do a more kind of hyper socialist one. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, this book was a little too socialisty for me, <laughs> which we'll get to. But I, I thought it was like use. It was like it was a favorable way of making the argument, right? Like, yeah. if there was a way to make that argument, like, in a sympathetic fashion, this is, like, the way to do it, right? Like, through the lens of an individual family and, like, what sort of capitalism has done to this family. And there's there's things that go beyond capitalism in this book that messed up the family's life. But, um, yeah, I think it seems like his goal was to really promote socialism. Yeah. And from online, I saw there were some quotes from the author uh, where basically he was upset that it didn't really have that effect. All it had was the effect of changing how we regulate meat in the United States. Well, I think that was part of the context in the intro too, yeah. where yeah. I guess Sinclair went and lived in one of these meatpacking communities for yep. a while. And he worked in, in a meatpacking Yeah, I guess one. he worked in one, right? Skin yeah. in the game. Yeah, a little Which bit. Pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> and that made him really disgusted with how the country was treating these immigrants coming to work, these terrible jobs. Yep. And so the, the book is a novel, but written with a lot of kind of contextual accuracy. Yeah. So it's written, you know, as a novel, but drawing on the experiences of people he met and creating a sort of realistic portrait of life at the time for one of these immigrant families. And the character in the book is from Lithuania. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Because that was a big issue because there weren't that many people from Lithuania either. Right, so right. language and translations and so you've got all of these immigrants coming over from Europe, it sounded like was the main one in this case, and working these horrible jobs and just getting like really taken advantage of by the companies and politicians and mobsters in the cities. And you know, Sinclair wrote the book to try to show how these immigrants are taken advantage of by capitalism and some of the benefits of socialist ideas. But Again, it just kind of got turned into like, whoa, this is what the beef industry is doing. We need to do something about that. Which, like, to be honest, after reading the book even for a second time, when I think of this book, I think mainly of the meat stuff. Yeah. And to be fair, I think of that followed by it truly does make you see the value of uh, safety nets of certain types and then some consumer protection laws. Right. So like I remember there's a section which we'll get to, but um, of like when they signed the mortgage to the house. Right. Like there were a whole bunch of clauses that basically like they couldn't understand or obviously because they don't speak English and they had hired a lawyer to help them. But the lawyer was friendly with the real estate company was probably getting some kickback on that side and basically didn't tell them about a bunch of things like they have to pay for the insurance and they have to pay like they're basically renting the house right up until they pay. Yeah. And they have to pay interest on the amount owed on top of the monthly rent payments. Yep. So it just made me at least definitely much more sympathetic to arguments for like some consumer protection laws. And then the safety net thing was really interesting, too, because, you know, during the story, he the main character gets injured and he's the you know primary breadwinner of the family and how him not earning basically destroys any kind of financial situation that they had. And they're already poor. But then with him losing his income, there was basically nothing to fall back on. Yeah. And then I didn't realize how like how we didn't really have weekends. 
until I read this book. Yeah. I didn't realize weekends weren't like a thing until modern sort of like very much modern days. Right. It's like the default weekend is kind of a new thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that you can afford to not work for two days of the week. It's kind of a big deal. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. So actually, if you think about it, I wonder if uh, I've heard this argument made for like the automation of jobs as well, where like maybe we'll still work, but we'll work less. And there might be a way to mitigate some of the effects of automation by shortening the work week even more. Oh. So basically making like, you know, at least to start maybe four days a week of work and three days weekend. And you would still be able to employ the same number of people, but each person is working less, basically. I almost feel like you could already do that. You could probably already <laughs> you could probably already work four days a week and be fine. My mom works for the federal government and they have a system where if you work, I believe it's nine hours for nine days straight or whatever, or no, eight days straight, you get the next day, like you get one extra yeah. vacation day and you can do that. And then you can also work from home nice. every Friday if you want with no issues and like they they've got to know less work gets done when people yeah. are working from home oh, and yeah. that, those types of roles too. Well, I worked for a government contracting consultancy and almost everybody worked from home on Fridays yeah. and you you would get no emails. Right. <laughs> no, nobody was working. So in maybe in effect people are already doing that. Yeah. Like to a large extent, right? I'm not saying everybody, but to a large extent maybe people are. <laughs> well, there's some of those startups and stuff too that do the Fridays off in the summer thing. Yep. And they kind of report that it doesn't really end up affecting productivity yeah. that much. Estee Lauder did that too, even for a big company. So they do, it was called Summer Fridays. I think you got either five extra days off on Fridays or you could take 10 half days. Oh, so it's okay. like up to you. However, Or you could split it however you want. It doesn't, you don't have to pick one or the other. It's kind of a cool way to do that. Yeah, kind of interesting. But it's also interesting a big company was doing it like that too. Yeah. So overtly. <laughs> well, I, I think it's also kind of a don't ask, don't tell sort of thing where everyone's just mutually complicit in mm. taking Fridays off, yeah. right? Where it's like your boss wants to and so they won't you know, hold you accountable <laughs> and you want to, so you won't yep. like, you know, rat on your boss or right. anything. And it just kind of like spreads up the food chain that way. Yep. Which honestly, as long as the work gets done, like it really doesn't matter. Yeah, that's <laughs> the thing too. And if you know you're going to take Friday off, then it's probably pretty easy to get most of your important stuff done the first four days of the week. Exactly. And also if your work depends on other people, and they aren't working on Fridays. You can't even do what you're supposed to do on Friday. So yeah, you're probably right. There's some like mutually assured destruction thing going on here. Right. Or mutual, you know, mutual benefit. Cooperation. Yes. A mutually assured benefit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Come on. It's a socialist book. I was going to say destruction of Fridays, but destruction yeah. of Fridays. <laughs> the Friday work day. There we go. <laughs> so, well, I think for this book, I mean, again, it's a novel like Atlas Shrugged. And I mean, I think we're inevitably going to spoil a lot of the plot because we'll need to talk about a lot of the plot to get to the main points. But all of that said, I think it's still worth a read. It wasn't like a thriller. Yeah, it's not a thriller. And honestly, the plot is a little... It's 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 basic. Contrived, yes. I want to say, because it's there's just so... And maybe this is the point, right? But there's just so much bad shit that happens to this guy yep. that I find it hard to take seriously at points. I find it to be almost like a fairy tale. A little bit, yeah. It's like purposely exaggerated, I think, yeah. to show like this is the worst case scenario, but not like this is like everybody's situation. A normal. Right. And in some ways, it's kind of like that was shrugged in that way. <laughs> yeah. Everything happened to this guy. It was horrible. Literally everything that can go wrong goes wrong throughout the whole book. Yeah, the mortgage thing, the like. Yeah, the mortgage, the kid, what, like all of it. And I was going to say, that's where I think it is less effective of a political, you know, a, like political philosophical novel than something like Atlas yeah. because Atlas is very like 
idyllic and like look at what these amazing people can do in this world and this one is very the jungle is kind of like whiny right right it's like he gets shat on for 90 percent of the book and then he discovers socialism and it's like oh my god this world would be so amazing did you know though that sinclair disavowed the last part of the book really yeah i saw that on wikipedia today i didn't know that yeah he like disavowed i think starting from like the big socialist rally yeah onwards was like he basically said that that was not well done (laughs) He was like, if I was to do it again, I'd write that completely differently. That is the weird part of the book. I didn't like that part. Yeah, I don't. I didn't like it at all. I don't think he. I don't think anybody liked it. Yeah, and, and not because I think. I mean, I do think socialism is bad, but that wasn't the reason I no. didn't like it. It's just noticeably less well written, and there's not really like a plot development during it, mm-hmm. and it just kind of feels like proselytizing it's not an argument so much right it's basically just saying oh this would obviously be better right right like this world would be so much superior but there's no real argument or kind of like thing to take from it well and they obviously also don't go into any of the negative sides of socialism <laughs> yeah right of course <laughs> because if you're trying to make the point i understand why they didn't do that but yeah you're right it's much more of like a political speech almost i would say it's much more of a like religious speech yes that's probably a better where it's like this guy gets shat on for 90 percent of the book and then he discovers god right like he finds jesus and he gets rescued and then he gets rescued and saved and he goes around trying to you know save other people yeah but there's no it felt much more like a religious it's thing. It's one-dimensional, really. Yeah, it's very one-dimensional. Yeah. The first two parts of the book, I really liked a lot. Like, even though, you know, obviously, as you're saying, it's like, it is exaggerated, I feel, yeah. about too. But even then, you you can't help but feel sympathy for the guy and for his family. But then, yeah, it turns into this one-dimensional thing later on. But I, I, I think the first time I read it, I don't even think I read the last part. I think I, like, started to, and then I was like, I, this is really boring. Because yeah. <laughs> it got boring after. Yeah, it gets very boring. It's like, you kind of just want to skim it. Yeah. Because it's like, all right, I get it. I get it. You like socialism, <laughs> rah, rah, Karl Marx. Yep. Right? And then, yeah, and then it just kind of ends. I also, I thought it was, um, so I have heard this about Sinclair before, that he was, like, very... Um, for the most part, very fair with different types of proposed solutions to a lot of these issues that he brought up. So, for example, like I think one thing you can see in here is that he sort of shits on unions, too, as being like equally corrupt parts of the system. Right. And and he makes that point to like say that this whole thing is screwed up. Right. And like the, we don't like the idea of business is basically bad. So I, I don't fully agree with all that stuff he's saying, but I did think it was intellectually honest of him to also shit on unions instead of making that seem like the savior right because i i at least from what i know about this time period in history that was kind of preached as the solution the solution yeah. right it was like you know and that was probably preached by the unions to be honest so i, I thought that was intellectually honest of him to yeah at least include that part as not part of the solution <laughs> <laughs> well and just showing how corrupt every level of the system was yeah oh the part about like buying the votes yeah for the election <laughs> <laughs> well let's we'll, we'll get to it we'll get to it so i guess we should start off you know with context kind of like the from the quotation we were reading in the intro the book starts with Jurgis and his family living in lithuania and you know being poor there as well and deciding that they're going to go to america and I guess they have a friend or some family who's already in America, like doing fairly well in Chicago. Who they thought was rich. Yeah, who they who they thought was rich. Struck it rich. Right, yeah. Struck it rich. And so they take the trip to the US. They get kind of taken advantage of a couple times along the way, lose two thirds of their money or whatever, but finally make it to Chicago. And the person they're living with is that friend who they thought had made it rich, right? 
the first person who yeah the first person yep the one who owned the deli one owned the deli yeah exactly yeah and then they basically felt a little betrayed because he was obviously not rich once they got there yeah he's he's living in like a hovel right (laughs) a fairly rough part of town but the thing that was really interesting is that at that time right to immigrate somewhere like truly meant kind of like a one-way trip oh yeah like they definitely did not have the money to go back well and they only knew one word of english which was chicago can you imagine the courage yeah that's terrifying that must take to do that but then think about how many thousands and thousands of families did that it's amazing yeah (laughs) like (laughs) i can't even imagine doing that no that would be like us going to like i don't know some like sub-saharan african country not knowing a word of the language it'd be even more than that because now we at least have the internet right for them there's like no way to be like how like you can't reverse the decision it's like maybe find a dictionary maybe and try to figure stuff out but and you've no idea if the place that you're going to right is even real right or exists right (laughs) they've never seen a probably map or something of chicago or photos they've just heard from this friend from this friend that this friend is in a place called chicago they have no idea where that is (laughs) they're just you know trying to figure out how to get there with almost no money and i think they had what 11 people at this point it was a big group yeah (laughs) and trying to get across the u.s and they came in through ellis island too so getting from new york to chicago which seemed to be how most people got in i think at at least from europe at that time yeah that or i guess through the great lakes kind of Mm. but that would be pretty crazy adventure yeah i don't even think we have a comparable in today's world no i mean you'd have to try really hard to do something comparably challenging it would probably be more like let's say there was colonization of mars already actually it still wouldn't be that much because we still have the internet we still have like ways to know what that life is like when there aren't other people yeah there there's no existing culture you're trying to get into yeah there's no comparable i don't think yeah. today not that i know of at least unless the comparable could be like a tribes person from like the amazon <laughs> coming to new york yeah right that would be the comparable because they probably don't know the internet exists or like well and the problem too for us is that people speak english everywhere right and that's the other thing yeah. you can kind of get this experience if you're a you know filipino coming to the u.s and you don't have an iphone and you can't get on the internet right right you can get close to this yeah. level of foreignness yeah but as an american i mean you go to china you go to japan you go to like almost any country you go to i mean hell they at least speak a few words well no i mean i was gonna say when my family went to africa right we were visiting like local maasai tribes people and they all had someone who spoke english <laughs> right so you can't go anywhere without <laughs> finding people and, okay i'm sure that you can find people who are still living indigenously where no one speaks english sure right? but even that seems to be difficult. Right. So you can just never get to this level of complete isolation in a new culture anymore. Yeah, which is, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. No, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just makes it impossible to imagine. Yeah, it just makes you respect these people so much for being willing to do that. And there were people who did that like all the time. Like so many thousands and thousands of families did that. Well, pretty much how the whole country started, right? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, so he gets to America, makes it to Chicago with this big group of people and it's him and his bride to be and her mother and some of their I think his dad was there. Yeah, his dad was there for period and some of their like another family friend and his wife or something and then some of their kids. It honestly it wasn't totally clear what exactly all their relationships was. But they were just all a group. They're just all it was a big group of like 11 people yep. traveling together. There were a couple kids in the group. Yeah, a few kids and they get there and they get to this, you know, hovel with their friend. And the first thing that Jurgis has to do is go out and look for work. 
Actually, all of them did that. Well, a lot of them. A lot of them did. Oh, that. yeah, actually, pretty much all of them do. Him and Maria. Yeah, Maria does. Ona doesn't. Not initially. So yeah. Maria is their friend's wife. I want to say. No, she was. She was single. She was single. Yeah. Yeah, because she got married or she got like engaged later. That's right. Yeah, yeah. She was single. She was someone's sister, I think. I want to say in the book. Oh, she was Ona's sister. Okay, I think. She was somebody's sister. She was really... Because Maria's mom is there too. Okay. And she was big and strong, I think, right? That was like the big thing with Maria. Yeah, Maria was fairly strong. She's able to do physical work. Right, right. Whereas Ono was like more like uh, more feminine, I guess. Like couldn't go out and work as much. Or like couldn't go do like physical, like moving. Because I remember Maria was... I think her first job was she was like canning, right? Which was they were saying 14 pound cans. Right. That she was like trucking around all day. Stuffing <laughs> them with ground beef. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so they all they all get there and they all have to go out and look for work. And one thing that I just thought was kind of I guess like special for lack of a better term in this section is you know, Jurgis is going out and standing in these long lines outside of these factories trying to get any job. And then he gets a job that was, as I understand it, like going around sweeping the guts and you know, dead parts of the cattle into these kind of like pits to go down to the next level of the factory, yep. getting paid 17 cents an hour. And he, at least as described in the book, is like jumping up and down with joy and, you know, runs home. Well, he thinks he's rich. Yeah, he thinks he's rich, right? Like <laughs> running home, like so happy, so excited, like telling his whole family. That's just kind of, I don't know, it's it's remarkable, yeah. right? It's And I feel like that's not a unrealistic caricature of how these people would have felt yeah. showing up and getting this kind of work, right? It's you were excited to be making 17 cents an hour, like shoveling cow guts into a hole yeah. for 10 hours a day. Yeah. Like that is a world that is unimaginable yeah. to anyone listening to this show. It's, yeah, well, exactly. Definitely if you're listening to this show. And I mean, the other thing was just how tenuous that position was. It's like you have no guarantee that the next day <laughs> he doesn't doesn't know that yet. He doesn't right? know that, right? But <laughs> he like, thinks he's set, right? And this yeah, is <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, all right, cool. I just do this forever and I'm rich. <laughs> yep. right? It doesn't quite work out that way. Yeah, that's true. He doesn't know this part yet. But also just like how they even counted the hours. Did you I found that part to be such bullshit? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I guess I guess now we should get into all the bullshit that <laughs> starts kind of piling up on him with this job, right? And the hours is the first thing. Where it's like, I think if you show up late at all. They put or you to work if they start the shift at 701. You don't get paid for that hour. Exactly. 701 to 8 is not a full hour. No. So you don't get paid for that. You only get paid for full hour. <laughs> exactly. You get paid from 8 to 9. And if they make you work from, you know, 6 to 659 and they end it at 659, you don't get paid for that hour. Yep. So he was saying like he realized that after a certain period of time, he realized getting paid is kind of like the lottery. Like, you know, you're going to get somewhere between this range and this range, but you have no idea what amount that's going to be. Yeah. Well, and then worse, it sounded like they would make them show up at seven, but they might not get a shipment of cattle in until one yep. or two. And you weren't getting paid for waiting around for the cattle to show up, but you still had to be there or else you get fired. Right. And so you might only get paid for four or five hours of work a day because that's just when the cattle were there. And then once they show up, the four people and stuff would rush everyone through the work as fast as possible. And then they'd be sitting around again. And then maybe they'd get another shipment at seven and then they'd be up until 1 a.m. Right. But then they'd have to be back at seven the next day. Yeah. Right. It's just you're getting these crazy hours, but not getting paid for all the time in the middle. Right. Kind of actually in a weird way, obviously to huge caveat in a way lesser extent. Right. But in a way reminds me of what my friends say about investment banking. I was just going to make the same (laughs) comparison. (laughs) Okay. I'm not saying being an investment banker is like shoveling cow guts into a hole. Right. Not at all the same. (laughs) But in the time frame thing, it actually 
reminds me a lot of it because they always say they have to be in by like, you know, 830 or whatever. And then usually they'll not do anything for most of the day. And around the end of the day, their boss will give them a whole bunch of shit to do that needs to be done by the next day. Yep. And they'll be there till like one or two. And then they have to be back again by 830 the next day. Exactly. Their boss is, you know, going to play tennis at 4 yep. p.m., <laughs> drops a bunch of work on their desk, needs it ready for them the next morning. Yep. <laughs> so now you have to work from four to nine. And you don't get paid extra for that time. There's no overtime. Exactly. You're salaried. <laughs> yeah, you just get what you get. Obviously, a way better situation than shoveling cow guts into a hole. But. Yeah, although it, in some ways, it's kind of a funny you know, modern upper middle class version of the same problem. Someone should write a novel about that. <laughs> like, well, it, it, it's kind of like, have you read Liar's Poker? Yeah. I was going to say that's sort of a similar style of book. We should do a Michael Lewis book at some point. Oh, I feel like that'd should. be fun. There's some good ones. Yeah. There's some I haven't read either that I want to. So maybe we'll, we can figure that out. Yeah. I'm sure we could pick a good one. But yeah, but Liar's Poker. Liar's is, Poker. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a similar idea. So there's just all of this crazy stuff going on to kind of short them on their job. And like you were saying before, there's none of that security. And so there's this common problem where they'll bring in cows and then they'll like break loose before they're fully killed. Yeah. And so this one steer eventually breaks loose and starts jumping around. And I guess it's like summer or something. So the room is really foggy. And so nobody can see what's going on. I think they said, yeah, so that was... Was that summer or winter? I forget which one it was. One of them gets very steamy. Yeah, the room gets really steamy for some reason. So I think, this, well, I think the cows are just like their innards are really hot, right? There's probably a lot of that. Oh, probably. Yes, yeah, so that's giving off a lot of steam, a lot of moisture. So the steer goes crazy and I guess kind of like gores Jurgis and it hits him on his leg. No, he turned his ankle. Like he turned what well, he initially thought he just turned his ankle. Oh, you're right. Yeah, but yeah, I think yeah. He, it was like way more serious than he initially thought. Yeah, he like really sprained it or broke it or something. And obviously he has no money, so he's not able to go to a doctor. And then the company doctor says like, oh, this didn't really happen on company property. So yeah, so we're not liable. Yeah. But then sends him home to rest for 10 days. But, and you don't get paid, of course, during that time. And at least, I mean, at least this time he gets lucky because when he comes back, they kick out the person they had in his place and give him his old job back. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, there's still some fairness in the world. And he has, I mean, he has this attitude we should mention. Yeah. He has this attitude where he says so many times, leave it to me, leave it to me. I will earn more money. I will work harder. So he has this, like, he's not a bum. He's not like this lazy guy who doesn't want to do anything. Right. He really just like, he's in America. He's eager to work hard and make his money basically well and i also felt too like that line was sort of one of sinclair's digs at capitalism yeah right where this is the protagonist's philosophy of oh you just need to work harder well this is like the atlas drug philosophy yeah almost, very similar of like the people who are cheers cheers uh the people who are doing well are the people who have worked really hard it's like a meritocracy right like i think that's a big part of Sinclair's philosophy that he's trying to attack, right? That it's not really a meritocracy. I mean, the whole book is basically exposing how the people who've made it are not the people who've done a good job. It's the people who figured out how to rig the system yeah. in their favor, right? And I think Atlas Shrugged is kind of showing the exact opposite thing, that the people who've made it are the people who have worked hard and done the right thing. And 
obviously like the truth is not on one side or the other. The truth is somewhere in the middle. They can both be true. They can both be true. I would say it leans that my, this is my bias. I think it leans towards meritocracy, but it is somewhere in the middle. Like we all know people who are at the top who truly do not like have not earned it. Let's put it that way. It's meritocracy with caveats. Yes. It's like 80% hard work and merit, but there is that 20% of, you know, obviously one where you start. Right. Who you're born to, I think, makes a huge difference. Who your parents are and then the circumstances you are born in. All of that. So there's a big luck element. I I guess I would say meritocracy creates the movements, but like where you are moving from. Right. Right. It's kind of largely out of your control initially. And this is what makes it really hard with like when people get into arguments about like postmodern type arguments, right, where people would say, um, I call it like the victim mentality, but when people basically say like, oh, like I can't do this because I wasn't born in a certain situation, right? Like it's hard because to some extent they're right. Yeah. Right. It's like, yeah, you were born in really, really shitty circumstances and that's a tragedy, right? But it also doesn't mean you're stuck there. Right. Yeah. And it's really hard to reconcile those two attitudes, right? Because on one hand, you do want to be sympathetic to the things people have been born into. But then on the other hand, there are tons of examples of people who have kind of not let that define them. But then you don't know how much like luck has played in that. And yeah, there's just like so many factors that go along with it. Well, and it gets hard, too, because I think that there is an element of generational success where, you know, obviously, if you are born privileged, then your favorite word. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just Whatever. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> then, then your your parents either did something really significant to get you there or they were born privileged. Right? Right. If they were born privileged, then maybe their parents did something really significant to get them there. Well, here's the amazing thing, right? White privilege that people talk about. Yeah. Maybe it's easier for me to say this than for you to say this. So <laughs> I'm going to say this. White privilege that people talk about is probably true, but like just to an extent, right? But that said, this story is people who are white who immigrated to America who are going through some horrible, horrible shit. And they're not getting any advantage because they're white, <laughs> really, right? It's like, well, and where I was going with that is these people are today's white privileged people's ancestors. Yeah. Right? So if you're Irish in America or have some percentage of Irish blood in you or Lithuanian blood or, you know, whatever country your ancestors immigrated from, they probably went through something like this. Mm-hmm. They might have worked in a meat packing plant or they might have worked in some type, you know, fertilizer factory, right? Like, yeah. We'll get to that, but that was a whole nother uh, saga of his life. But Well, I mean, my family on one side was like they emigrated, I want to say late 1800s to the US and they were literally farmers in like the Minnesota, North Dakota area. That's not an easy life. <laughs> that, yeah, that's not an easy life at all. No, but it's kind of to your point, right? The people who it's like when you first get here, right, it's going to be super hard. Yeah. And then, you know, for lack of a better term, we're calling privilege, right, develops over generations. Because you stabilize yourself, you stabilize your family, you stay like when you actually have something to build on. Well, and I think there's also a big, there's kind of like a, a leap, right, where you go from making money like to stay alive, right, to making money to build wealth, build wealth. Yeah, it's a big difference. I mean, it's a huge difference because five years spent making money to build wealth compounds, five years making money to stay alive doesn't. Right. And so if you have a hundred years of making money to build wealth compounding, that is magnitudes more than a hundred years to stay alive. And that doesn't start even counting like, I assume your parents own the house that you grew up in, right? Yeah. So like that's property that doesn't go away. Like once they've paid off the mortgage, like they own that house. Right. Right. And that's whether to you or to your sister or whoever, if they sell it or whatever, right? Like that is wealth. 
that your family now owns. And imagine that compounded over like four generations of houses, right? That yeah. Even if it's just houses, you don't count any other wealth, like no stocks, no nothing, just houses compound so quickly. Well, here's a crazy one that I, I kind of realized inadvertently is college funds. So my parents had a college fund for me and I did college in three years, so I didn't use all of it. Nice. And that doesn't like the fund doesn't go away. Right. So it keeps compounding. And then I guess like one of my parents could use it if they want to go back to school or we can just leave it there and then I can use it for one of my kids. Huh. Have so much compounding interest. Yeah, exactly. One of my kids wouldn't be going to college for 30 years from now, probably. If they go to college at all. Well, yeah, if they go to college at all. Shout out, Nat Chat. (laughs) (laughs) I guess not 30, like 25 or something, right? But still, like 25 years. Now we know Nat's timeline. I could feel feel Cosette giving me (laughs) when I said 30 years. (laughs) But, you know, even 20 years compounding interest on... Let's see Cosette's timeline. (laughs) (laughs) But even 20 years compounding interest on a few thousand dollars turns into a lot of money, right? And so there's this huge difference between, again, right, like making money to stay alive, making money to build wealth. And part of, I, I think, where there's issue with some of the socialist ideas of people should be able to come to the country and immediately be at that, you know, upper middle class socioeconomic status is that if that is true and if there is no heritability of wealth, there's much less incentive for you to create it. Right. Because ultimately part of why you work really hard and you know create wealth for yourself is to pass it on to your children or at least to give them a great life. Well, it's also kind of relates to what we talked about in denial of death. Yeah. Right. Where it's like that's like partially your pyramid is like your family's wealth. And yeah, I mean, it's like I don't think anybody can say they're not motivated by that. Right. It doesn't matter who you are. That is probably motivating. Well, and that's part of why these people would come here in the first place. Right. Exactly. Yep. Is that, oh, I, I'm coming to America to be rich, take care of my family. Well, that's kind of what they bring up at the beginning, right? They're like basically serfs in Lithuania. Yeah. Right. Who have no chance of getting anything in their future. And they view America. The cool thing about America is like you have a chance, right? It's like not guaranteed, but you have a chance. And yeah, okay, they were definitely naive when they came over, like they thought it was pretty much guaranteed. Yeah, right. But I think we talked about this in other episodes too. The one of the great things about, you know, the United States is that you can be rich in one generation and not rich in the other. And skin in the game. Yeah. And in that sense, it's also much more of a meritocracy than other countries might be right. Like, right. They were talking about how Lithuania is. I mean, in, in other books we've read, they talked about Florence. Yeah. Italy and just how stagnant the wealth is never leaves the people who already have it. Yeah. And so like in America, there obviously is some of that, but it's not exclusively that. But you're right. Like for people to even immigrate here, that is probably a major motivation is building that wealth in this country. Well, that's probably why. Well, especially for this book, too. It's like most of these people are immigrating from semi-socialist or soon-to-be-socialist style countries, right? right? Because in many ways, socialism is an evolution of the king and serf model. Yeah. Which is that, you know, you pay your huge tithe of your, you know, collected goods and then we take care of you, right? And they're fleeing that to go to America. But then they want America to operate on that same system that they just fleed from. Honestly, it kind of reminds me of like immigrant parents who bring their kids to America, but then want their kids to maintain the like lifestyle customs of the place they came from. Right. It's hard to have both. It is. Well, exactly. Yeah, it's totally true. But I guess we should get more into just Jurgis's life getting shot on <laughs> left and right here. So he he he's brains his ankle or whatever breaks it, gets well enough to go back to work and he goes back. But in the meantime, they have bought a house. 
Should be good news. Seems like, you know, a great investment. They meet a very fine man who takes them to visit these houses a mile and a half from the stockyards. So nice and close. And <laughs> walk to work. Yeah, walk to work. <laughs> yeah, it's hey, that's a big impact on uh, satisfaction for life. Unless your work is a meat factory, which <laughs> might not smell the best. But Yeah, exactly. If you're living close enough to smell all the dead cows, you're not going to be too happy. I've never been to a factory farm, but Adil was telling us, I think on one of the Sapiens episodes about how he drove by one and the stench was just like incomprehensible. Yeah, I've driven by them once or twice and it is just nauseating to be near it. So I can't imagine being inside of what it. This must have been. Although on the flip side, your sense of smell adapts very quickly. Yes, that's true. Right. Yeah. I mean, you've had that experience where you walk into a room and you think, whoa, this smells even you know, great or terrible. Right. And then five minutes later, it's gone. Right? <laughs> Maybe that's like something with our nose where we more register differences. Mm. We don't register constants. Although I would say our eyes do that too, but to a lesser extent. It's fair. Like if pay attention to movement. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Especially in peripherals. Mm. Like it's really hard to tell in peripherals what's going on. Right. Well, and we we ignore the static in the peripheral. But when things move, we notice it. Right. Exactly. But anyway, so mini tangent number one, a a wonderful person (laughs) takes them to see these houses and they're freshly painted and, you know, apparently brand new, never lived in before. And they can have the house for the small payment of three hundred dollars down plus twelve dollars a month. And this is where we get into the first challenge, which is that all the contract and stuff is in English. Right. And they've just gotten here. None of them speak English. And so they have to go out and find a lawyer to help them figure it out. And then the lawyer shows up and greets the person selling the house by their first name. Well, and he said he walked (laughs) extra far so that they wouldn't know each other. He was like to make sure that there was not any kind of relation. Yeah, (laughs) he tries to go really far away (laughs) to find a lawyer who's not right there. And then the guy walks in and knows the, the other guy who's talking to <laughs> Yeah, by first name. And so, they I mean, they buy this house. And as it turns out, the houses are sold in such a way that, you know, and this is actually fairly common. It's similar to now to taking out a mortgage, right? If you fail to pay back your mortgage, the bank takes your house, right? This is the same thing, except the person selling the house is also selling the mortgage. Yeah. And so you're paying the mortgage payments each month and then eventually you'll get to own it. But as soon as you miss a payment, they just take the house back. Right. And they still keep the down payment. Exactly. They keep the down payment, all the interest and all the monthly payments. And so they think they're just paying the down payment and the monthly payment of $12. But then there's also interest, which they aren't explicitly told about. And then they don't find out until the end of their first month. And they bought the house by doing the math of like, oh, well, it'd be cheaper to buy the house than rent. Exactly. Because this is all the payment is. Yeah, we got to part with the $300 up front. But then over time, it becomes cheaper. Yeah, they're thinking, that I guess they're paying what, like $9 a month in rent? Something like Something that. Something like that. Yeah. But they needed to upgrade anyway because they were saying it was like really bad conditions. So they were and they at- wanted to have a kid. Yeah. And I guess they figured after they paid off the house, then, you know, it'd be rent free. Right. So if they thought on a 30 year time scale, it became more efficient to buy the house. Yeah. And I think the time frame they were talking about was like eight years or something like that. But they weren't told about interest. They weren't told about insurance. And the electric bill or something or no, not electric. Well, no, like water. Well, if they had to fix anything in the neighborhood, they had to contribute. Right. If the city or area decided to pave the sidewalks, they had to pay for it. Yep. Right. All of that stuff. And so their monthly payments that they thought were going to be $12 end up being, it was like 22, 25. It was something around there. So twice as much as they thought. Right. And Jurgis is making like a dollar fifty a day. Right. And he thinks that's really good until you start seeing the costs of stuff. Exactly. But now they've got all of these expenses and it's really just him and Maria, I think, working at first. Yeah. 
And then I think then the kid went after. Right? Yeah, as soon as they get the house and they find out about the interest, now they have to put their kids to work and the kids can't go to school anymore. So they start sending their kids into downtown Chicago to sell newspapers because if they don't, then they're all going to starve to death. Well, then the, one of the kids went to a different kind of factory or something, right? Stan. Oh, that was later. Yeah, that, that was much later. I think for now, they're all they're just doing the newspaper yeah. stuff. Well, actually, I think right now at this point in the book, Stanislav is too young to work. Yeah, I actually didn't realize until reading this book. That was another thing this book brought my attention to was how common child labor was like 100 years ago. Well, so here's kind of like uh, a controversial opinion. Oh, that, here we go. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> I would say that child labor is not necessarily a bad thing. It's bad if they're in conditions like this, yeah. where they can fall into a meat grinder. Well, I would say this is that's bad for anybody, whether you're a child or an adult. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Doesn't really matter. But something that this book highlights well is that for some families, child labor is almost necessary to survive. Right. And okay, yeah, we, we can also get into the, the argument of like socialism should be able or you know, the government should be able to take care of the family well enough that their kids don't have to work. And I agree with that to the most part. Yeah. But if you are in a situation where the government doesn't take care of families well enough for the kids to not have to work and you have laws forbidding children from working, that's a problem. Right. Well, then what are they supposed to do? Exactly. That's the problem in the US. I don't know how much of a problem it actually is now because I think that the welfare is good enough. But I've heard of this being an issue is like Western countries going into Africa and other areas and saying, oh, you can't let your kids work. Right. I've heard like for um, like even in Asia too. Yeah. Same kind of thing. Right? Same kind Where of it's, thing. Yeah. But, and it's like, okay, but then the family is going to start, right? Because they can't afford to sustain themselves without the kids contributing to the income. Right. And it's better for the kids to not be dead. Right. Yeah. That's a great point. Than to not be working. And it's a very like Western idealized world not fitting with well, it's like imposing your values on a completely different structure of society yeah. where it's like, yeah, that would be great if kids didn't have to work, but also putting modern values on pre-modern levels of industry. Yeah. Right. It was kind of like when China was first developing industrially and then the US and Europe was like, oh, you can't pollute the atmosphere. Right. And China had a fairly fair response, which is like, well, you guys did for 100 years to get where you are. Right. And now you expect us to just like skip that step. Like, how are we going to do that? I actually buy that argument. I buy that. Yeah, completely. It makes perfect totally sense. Totally fair. Yeah. Right? So maybe you have to do 200 years of, yeah, the kids need to work in some capacity to get your economy to the point of, you know, being able to be sustained without the kids working. I also think that if a large part of the anti kids working argument is dependent on schools actually preparing kids for the future. Yeah. Because you could make the argument that if schools did prepare kids for the future adequately, right, which I totally think they do not. <laughs> which is another discussion. That's a whole nother episode. We'll, <laughs> that, that's we'll next episode, actually. Yeah, actually. It is. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll table that. We'll table that one for now. But um, if they did, I could buy the argument that, OK, by making kids work, you're actually making society less rich in the long run because people are not developing the skills that they would have been able to develop later on. They can't become writers, technologists, whatever. But since we live in a society where schools are clearly, you know, not really doing an adequate job of preparing everyone for the future, not even talking about colleges, I'm talking about like elementary, middle and high schools. In that type of environment, a kid might actually be better off working in the right type of environment. Yeah. Like I would argue if a kid in high school, like in ninth grade, was able to drop out and go work for you, let's say, or for, you know, any number of internet enabled companies. Yeah. They probably learned so much more in those four years than they would learn in high school. Yeah, I would be strongly in favor of that. Depends on the kid, I guess. But like, like you know, there'd probably be some self-selection 
that would come out of there. But to have a law that's a, that says that's illegal yeah. is what makes it tough. That's where it's an issue, yeah. right? Is creating these blanket laws, preventing it. Like, I'm not saying everybody has to go do that. Yeah, no. okay, it shouldn't be a law that you have to go work for a company starting <laughs> in ninth grade, right? But if you want to, should there be a law preventing you doing that? I don't know. That's a good question. Although, yes, you can drop out of high school, can't you? Or no, you have to be I think 18? 16. 16? You can. There's like a, there's an age, maybe a state, state by state Might too. Might be state by state, be yeah. surprised if that was the case. Yeah, but I mean, you can drop out of high school for sure. Yeah, it's not sure when that becomes okay. Yeah. Or like I know different states have different child work laws. I think some states you can work at like 14 and some states it's older than that. In Texas, you can, you know, be packing bullets with your <laughs> fingers as, as young as six. <laughs> Should we quote you on that? <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, Schindler's List. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So <laughs> getting back into the book a bit. I mean, the one thing he talks about a lot here, Sinclair, that is, is just how bad the meat packing industry was in terms of what was actually getting put into the food. I couldn't believe that when I was yeah. like reading it. I was like, well, one, it makes you wonder, like, have all the problems been corrected? <laughs> right? Yeah, that's a big that's the one thing you can't help but wonder is, OK, I know these government institutions were created, but <laughs> how well have they done their job? Right. Really? Right. It does make you a little concerned. Yeah. But I guess maybe we should get into what some of these issues even <laughs> were, even though they're pretty nasty. But Oh, gosh, this this like a lot of these. So one, I'll just read it from the book. It seemed that the beef packing trust must have had agencies all over the country to hunt out old and crippled and diseased cattle to be canned. These were cattle which had been fed on whiskey malt, the refuse of old breweries and had become what the men called steerly, which means covered with boils. It was a nasty job killing these. For when you plunged your knife into them, they would burst and splash foul-smelling stuff into your face. And when a man's sleeves were smeared with blood and his hands steeped in it, how was he ever to wipe his face or to clear his eyes so that he could see? It was stuff such as this that made the embalmed beef that had killed several times as many United States soldiers as all the bullets of the Spaniards. Only the army beef besides was not fresh canned. It was old stuff that had been lying for years in the cellars. <laughs> oh my god that sounds appetizing oh uh, yeah and this is one of the sections that made the government look at the beef industry right was because they had seen how many soldiers died in the spanish-american war from bad beef and this kind of explains you know why the beef was killing people well i remember i can't find the quotation here but basically there was a section about how uh like rats would be all over the meat on one of the floors yeah and so they would put out here, hold on I, I know where it is the poisoned bread right yeah oh go ahead so, yeah, basically, they put out poisoned bread out to, like, kill these rats, and the rats would die. But then when they were packing the beef, all these things would go into the hoppers. So the dead rats, the poisoned bread, the rat dung, it would all go into the hoppers to make, I think it was sausage, right? I found it. A man could run his hand over these piles of meat and sweep off handfuls of the dried dung of rats. These rats were nuisances, and the packers would put poisoned bread out for them. They would die, and then the rats, bread, and meat would go into the hoppers together. And this is for, like, sausage and stuff. Yeah. And then it gets better. It gets better. Great. Because it goes on to say, there was no place for the men to wash their hands before they ate dinner, and so they made a practice of washing them in the water that was to be ladled into the sausages. So <laughs> it's just everything, like, all of the most terrible stuff is going into here. There was another section where they were talking about how 
uh, this family was used to eating smoked sausages because that's from you know where they're from. Yeah. So they assume that when they're buying smoked sausages in America, which that was one part of the book where I was like, you work in one of these plants. Like, wouldn't you know there's something fucked up about like how they're making the sausage? But anyway, they're buying the sausages. And, uh, you know, Sinclair makes the point that they didn't know that the sausages had been basically diluted with potato flour. Yeah. So obviously you're not getting the same caloric content. You're not getting the same nutritional content as you were used to getting. So your your monthly expenditures on food were way higher than you thought because obviously you're not full from this like potato sausage that you're eating. Yeah. <laughs> you think you're eating a real sausage and you're being charged for a real sausage, but you're really buying like mostly potato mixed with like rat dung <laughs> yeah. and dead rats. Well, and it's not just the meat too. Because there's this section about all the other food they're eating. Yep. Right. So it says in the book, how could they know that the pale blue milk that they had bought around the corner was watered and doctored with formaldehyde? When the children were not well at home, Teta Elzbieta would gather herbs and cure them. Now she was obliged to go to the drugstore and buy extracts. And how was she to know that they were all adulterated? How could they find out that their tea and coffee, their sugar and flour had been doctored, that their canned peas had been colored with copper salts and their fruit jams with aniline dyes? And even if they had known it, what good would it have done them since there was no place within miles of them where any other sort was to be had? Yeah. Just everything you're eating is poison. So in a weird way, this reminded me of Sapiens when we were reading this. It's like the bargain between being like that mm. sort of peasant or hunter-gatherer lifestyle versus like modern society. Yeah. Obviously, they're getting like the worst of modern society. But to some degree, you could say we all still face some of this problem, right? Where it's like, I would say it's getting better through companies like Kettle and Fire, shout out Kettle and Fire, that are giving us access to more of these like pure foods, Yeah, easier access to more of these pure foods. But for a lot of things, it's like you don't really have choice. Like if you, you know, like we, you and I might, because we're in people in the upper middle class, let's say, have the ability to pay for certain things. But if you're still a poor person in America, you can't go pay $5 for an apple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Like you're kind of stuck with the cheapest meat you can get, which is the like grain fed, right? Antibiotics, hormones. That's where I'm going. Like you're not getting free range like beef. Or you're just eating all grain, right? Which is pretty bad too. Yeah, there was an there was an article um it was in my monthly newsletter like maybe a year ago about like how somebody who gets like food stamps, how they shop, yeah. even if they're trying to be healthy, like what are they spending those food stamps on and how you could spend that money efficiently to actually feed yourself. It basically requires you don't have fresh produce. <laughs> oh yeah. Because the amount is just not enough, right? So like produce is surprisingly effective or expensive. Right. Well, I've heard the argument that our produce is less nutritious than it used to be. Weren't you telling me about that with the carbohydrate content? And when you breed for volume, yeah, breed for size and volume, you lose nutrition. It's one of those things where it's like the measurement you use affects, I guess, what farmers are incentivized to go do. Yeah. So when you're charging by the pound right? Your incentive is to make the produce weigh as much as it can. Uh, so if you're selling apples, for example, right? And the price for apples is like 99 cents a pound. Yeah. If you can make the apples selectively breed, I'm not even talking about GMO. If you if you can selectively breed the apples to have more water content, they're going to be bigger and weigh more. Right. And so the same number of apple trees will yield more money to you because now instead of the whole tree, you know, being worth 50 pounds of apples, let's say it's worth 100 pounds of apples. So you make more money. Yeah. It's just like the incentives make that happen. Right. And so there are like, I mean, if you talk to people who are, you know, maybe they were born in the 30s or, or something like that. So people, you know, our grandparents generation, yeah, they will say that like produce used to be smaller. 
Right. Like you'll hear apples, especially is a big one that people point to of like, we have monstrous sized apples now. I mean, you can tell that just traveling. Yeah. Oh, blueberries are a great example too. Yeah. Have you ever seen wild blueberries? They're really small. They're so small. <laughs> and then you go to like Costco and buy blueberries and they're well, like it's the size yeah. of what an apple should be. Right? <laughs> yeah. So I guess even just like wild versus farm type. Yeah. There's a massive difference. Well, if you go to like organic, really old school cheers. cheers. Apple farms. Yeah. You can even see it there. The apples are fairly small. Yeah. Or if you go to like, um, like I remember on one of my trips to Italy, we were in this like smaller town and there was like a little, I don't even want to call it farmer's market. There's a little market and they had apples and they were really small. They kind of look almost like peaches, like the size of a peach or something. Well, and I think the other thing too is they used to be much less sweet. Yeah. More almost potato-y in that they're fairly bland, a little sweet, but almost what we would call today like a crab apple. Right. Right. Just not because now if so you I wonder how the nutrition profile has changed too over time. It must have must be much higher in sugar. Well, and that's what I was remembering from the article you sent about, you know, crops becoming less nutritious was the carb content has gone way up which probably helps with retaining more of the water. Right. Let's them become more voluminous yeah. while having less. Because I, I would imagine that the vitamin and other content stays the same per fruit. But as the volume increases, the density of nutrients goes down. Yeah. So there's that whole problem. And then also just like vitamin and nutrient density in fruit is fairly bad anyway. Right. Right. It's mostly a sugar delivery device, a way to like not starve from dehydration on inland journeys. Right. That's why we like it. Yeah. And so then you just make it sweeter and sweeter. So it's like a candy and it really does taste like it. I mean, I'm kind of always amazed that if I because sometimes I'm good with sugar, but every now and then I'll go through phases of being very like sugar, you know, like I want sweets every night. And it only lasts like a few days. It's a drug, man. Yeah, it is a drug. I mean, but if I have fruit, that satisfies the craving in the same way as a candy bar would. I've been trying to have, I don't know, for better or for worse, I've been trying to avoid, like I've never done keto as we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Like I've never been done formal keto, but I've been trying to basically get my sugars from fruit. Yeah. And that actually is a weird, like weirdly effective rule because it's hard to eat that much fruit. Yeah. Right. Because there is so much water in it. Well, and you'll start to feel sick eventually. Right. Too. Well, it's like hard to. So the amount of sugar that's in like a pack of candy or something like a pack of gummy bears. Right. Oh, that's what you mean. Yeah. Like to get that much sugar from fruit, you'd have to eat so much fruit. You would need like five apples. Like who eats five apples in a city? Well, and you'd be getting all of the fiber and everything with it. Right. So, yes, fructose is bad. And even just the water is what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. It's just like the water. You just like so much volume of water there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that fruit is a little over demonized simply for having fructose. And yes, right. fructose is bad in isolation. Yeah. But when you mix it in with all the fiber that's in apples and stuff, it becomes less bad. I, I actually don't think that fruit is necessarily net good for you, but it's definitely not. Certainly not like the, the USDA regular. Yeah. What is it? Is it the FDA or USDA? Yeah, where it's like you should be having three to four servings of fruit a day. It's like that doesn't really make sense. What is it like the nine to ten servings of uh, grains? Or yeah, something? grain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, avocados. Yeah, sure. And maybe tomatoes and certain fruits. But uh, yeah, I mean, you shouldn't be having like three or four apples a day, probably. Right. But an apple is better than a Coke yeah. or, <laughs> or a Snickers bar, like a box yeah. of Oreos. Right. <laughs> like, it, it may. I mean, and even if it's the same amount of sugar, the sugar in an apple is going to be less damaging than, you know, just pure raw sugar. Right. I mean, it's the same thing with like orange juice. 
right? That's a great point. Because orange juice is as bad for you as Coca-Cola for the most part, right? Because it's like pure sugar removed from all of the fibrous content, right? That's that's why all the juice cleanse things are such bullshit, right? It's like juice is terrible for you. Right. Smoothies are fine. Because you still get the full content of the fruit. Exactly. You still get the full fruit. You get all the fiber and everything. But if you just try to take out the juice without all the other stuff that makes it less bad for you. <laughs> all the things that make the fruit good. You basically get the sugar part. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's like drinking Coca tea versus, you know, doing cocaine, right? Same plant. Very different experience. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, I've heard coca tea is like mildly it's delicious. stimulating. Yeah, and it's it's lightly stimulating, tastes great, nicely energizing. I wish it were legal in the US. I'd drink it a lot. Yeah. There's many things I wish were legal in the US. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe states can start that at some point. Which is every day, you know, like coca tea for, you know, 16 hours, mushrooms for four hours. <laughs> it's a great life cycle. New sponsor. It made you think. Yeah. Coca tea. <laughs> coca tea and psilocybin. Part of cup and, cup and leaf. Yeah, right? cup and leaf. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Hey, someday. Someday. Maybe. Yeah. Hey, if it gets legalized. Hey, I mean, made you think listeners can start the movement. They can. Go call your congressman and tell them you want coca tea to be legal. <laughs> the problem is there aren't enough high altitude places in the US mm. that are highly populated for it to be justified because that's what it's really good for. I mean, it, it's amazing as an altitude sickness reliever. Oh, really? Yeah. So I've only had it in Peru because if you go to Cusco, which is like 13,000 feet above sea level, they give out free coca tea everywhere and coca candy. Hmm. And so you can like chew on it and suck on it. So it helps you with your altitude yeah, sickness. Yeah, it really like cures the altitude sickness. It's kind of amazing. So it's sort of like one of those old school, you know, healing medicine. As Taleb would say, the your grandmother's treatment. Yeah, grandmother's right? yeah. treatment. <laughs> but there's probably just not enough of those places in the U.S. for them to be convinced to legalize it. Right. Plus, you can't. Maybe Denver. You can't patent it like we were talking about before. <laughs> yeah. Right? Maybe Colorado can start the trend. There we go. Since they have altitude. Yeah, they, they should just do the same thing that they did with wheat, right? Legalize it. Right. And then. See what happens. See what happens. <laughs> tax it. Yeah. Legalize it. Tax it. Make some money. <laughs> and what are they doing now? They like paid for renovations for all their public schools or something crazy. Yeah. I heard they like got it. The people got a check or like a refund. Oh, yeah. Like a tax refund or yeah. something because they made so much money. They on made it. more money than expected. Off of <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's great. That and gambling are going to be like ubiquitous in the United States within like five years. Well, now there's the new sports gambling thing. Yeah. Thank you, Chris Christie. Yeah. Tell, I don't know anything about this. Oh, well, it's basically like up until now, sports gambling has basically been exclusive to Vegas and then I think maybe Atlantic City. Okay. And then New Jersey wanted to legalize it throughout the state. And I got challenged, went to the Supreme Court, and they won. So New Jersey now has the right to make it legal throughout New Jersey. But it sets the precedent for every single state oh, to make yeah. it legal within their state. So now it's up to state, basically. Before it was like one of those... I actually don't know how Vegas and Atlantic City got the exemption. I have no clue how that happened, or I don't know the rules behind that. I'm sure there's some licensing or something that makes that legal. But now with the ruling, it makes it so any state can legalize sports gambling. And I think what's probably going to happen is it's not going to be a state like it'll be legalized on a state by state basis, but there will be like an online platform or multiple ones that end up actually making that happen. Yeah, I suppose the online platforms should be legal now. Though. Yeah, it doesn't need to be a physical location. I wonder if that'll carry over a poker now, too. Hopefully. Because like poker is not gambling. It's a game of skill. Game of skill. Exactly. Right. Like it's not roulette. Yeah, it's not roulette. I mean, it's a zero sum game of, you know, competition. Right. It's more similar to like if you were playing like a sport for money, like you're playing a basketball game for money or something. Yeah. And the winner gets a certain amount of money. Of course, there's chance in basketball, too. Right. Like the ball goes this way or that way. But like there's obviously skill involved, too. So hopefully that happens with poker, too. Yeah. It'd be interesting if poker got legalized, but not other gambling. I like personally don't understand why any of these things are like 
like I get I get what people are like people say oh well people are going to lose their money and like get addicted to it. yeah okay that makes sense but then if you use that argument then like nothing should be legal like sugar shouldn't be legal sugar shouldn't be legal alcohol <laughs> alcohol shouldn't be legal <laughs> television yeah uh, the uh, internet cell phones social media <laughs> this podcast yeah <laughs> yeah so I don't know I feel like the gambling thing will become an online platform driven because it'll be like let's say you have physical locations the online stuff will just be so much easier for people to use people yeah. can bet while they're taking a shit like you know it's hard to beat that <laughs> i am excited about this trend towards libertarianism effectively yeah everything getting legalized right it you know it's like weed gay marriage now gambling right all this stuff that had been illegal for so long yeah is like rapid and now we're seeing like psilocybin is probably going to get yep. at least legalized for medical treatment right and mdma well it's shocking that for weed like that people still can't do a lot of the medical trials because it's still a schedule one drug yeah which is absurd cocaine is schedule two yeah right <laughs> i didn't know that because i found out that uh, i heard that on a joe rogan podcast with peter atia oh i think yeah, it was yeah. like a, maybe last year or something i heard that and then he mentioned a schedule two and i was like no way and i googled it and it's schedule two well that's because cocaine started as a pharmaceutical right i think from bayer it was a cough suppressant it's still used as an emt or not yeah uh no ears nose and yeah i think ENT. ents can use yeah. it for certain things yep Right. I'm not sure exactly. It's still used apparently in some surgeries. Yeah. That it's used as a drug in, but I think you can use it as like a local anesthesia. Yeah. Right. Like in your mouth or I guess like you can make your gums go numb where you place it before doing a surgery for some people who don't respond well to opiates. Maybe. Yeah. There's something like that. Something like that. Yeah. There is a medical use. There's for a medical it, use for it, which is why it's scheduled two, but marijuana is scheduled yeah, one. Yeah. Marijuana is scheduled one. What is heroin? Because obviously opioids are used in medicine. Well, yeah, heroin started as a medicine as well, I think. Right. Well, morphine is used. Yeah, morphine. You know, here's the crazy thing is all of those come from poppies. Right. Heroin, morphine, oxycodone, like all of it's from the same plant, which is kind of wild. My uh, uncle, I was having dinner with him on Thursday and he was telling the story of how uh, back in, this is obviously a major tangent now, but um, back in India, one of the, so his grandfather, so my great grandfather, I guess, had this one like servant at his house who was basically constantly high on opioids <laughs> and he was chewing poppies like there's like a, oh, a yeah. flower of the poppy that you can make a tea out of or you can chew and he was like either chewing it or drinking the tea all day and he was like this guy was basically a zombie that's like one <laughs> of his very few memories of that guy but uh. that guy was there like he was like yeah until my his grand like my uncle's grandfather passed away he was like that guy was in our household and he was basically always high. <laughs> well, that's probably a fairly safe way to do the drug. Probably, yeah. Right? You probably won't overdose on it. Yeah, you won't overdose, and it won't be, I imagine, nearly the same level of effect. No, I probably imagine it to be mildly like marijuana. Yeah. Like, probably you're just like baked. Kind of baked, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like, I found this study recently. Are you familiar with uh, snus? No. So, snus is kind of like chewing tobacco, but it's in these little like filmy packets, right? So, almost like a coffee filter like tiny, tiny coffee filter wrapped around some tobacco. And then you just kind of put it in your lip the same way you would put huh. like chewing tobacco in your lip, but it's pure tobacco. It's like none of the extra stuff. And I guess it's really popular in Sweden or something. And I don't remember exactly the country they were looking at, but people there do it all the time on the same level of the amount people in other countries smoke cigarettes. Hmm. But the cancer rate is like a magnitude lower. It's like less than 10% of the cancer rate in the comparable country smoking cigarettes. Oh, wow. And so it's like just by consuming the plant 
in its natural form, right? Like sucking on the tobacco leaf, which is probably how the Native Americans did it here too. Yeah, yeah. Natives anywhere, like anyone doing these drugs, you know, old school style, right? Like doing it that way had almost no noticeable long term adverse health effects. Whereas people smoking, right, it was like terrible. Lindy, <laughs> yeah, Lindy strikes again. <laughs> so it's just, it's kind of interesting, right? I feel like you know if you're chewing poppy seeds to get high, it's probably not going to do that much damage to you, right? But then you turn into heroin, and that's like life destroying, right? Sipping coca tea, totally fine. In a weird way, it's very much like sugar, yeah, right. It's like if you're having like have wild fruits, and you will probably not you know, have any sugar related diseases. You're probably not going to get diabetes if you have a few apples a day. But if you have a few Snickers bars a day, <laughs> that can get up. You, yeah. yeah. Or a few Cokes a day or something like that. Yeah. You're probably going to be the above. Yeah. Lindy. Man, Lin- Lindy. It's a good rule. Yeah. All right. I guess we should. What, what book are we talking about today? <laughs> uh, <laughs> tobacco related? No. <laughs> uh, Merchants of Doubt? No. Uh, Skin of the Game? Uh, oh, yes. Okay. The Jungle. So <laughs> eventually he does actually lose his job. You know, actually, we might have been wrong before. I think that when the steer breaks loose in the winter, when the room is full of steam and he gets hit, that's like he does lose his job. That's when he actually lost his job. I think I think he had like a near miss earlier. I think he like fell or something or twisted his ankle. And that's when he didn't get laid off. But the steer hitting him did lay him out uh, because he he like could not work. Yeah, he tries to get back to work. Oh, and you know what? That was definitely it because he's expecting the same thing to happen. Them to have held his job, but they don't. Right. And so he goes back and he's trying to, you know, get his job. And they say, "No, we don't have any work for you." And he starts going to everywhere else in Packingtown asking for a job, and nobody will give him a job. And so then he's like circling through all the same places trying to get one, and eventually gets to the point where the guards just turn him away. Right? They're like, "No, you're not welcome here." Yeah. Yeah. You, you can't have a job. And eventually, eventually he gives in and kind of stoops to what's described as the lowest level of all work in Packingtown, which is working in the fertilizer plants. So this is like the bottom, bottom of the factories. Which it's amazing they can go lower than shoveling cow guts into a trap, right? Like, I know, right? But the cow guts are going down here right. with like all the shit and everything. And they're, I guess, like packaging fertilizer to send off. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, it just sounds just like it sounds like hell. Oh, my God. So awful. It's what was the thing where it's like it basically covers you. Yeah, it gets into your skin. Yeah. And so you just reek of it. Even if you try to shower and get it off, like you smell like shit. Yeah, literally, literally shit. Shit. Yeah. It's fertilizer. (laughs) And you just can't get rid of it, which just sounds like God awful. And he's, you know, kind of consigned to this because he can't get work anywhere else. Right. But they have the mortgage on the house and they have to keep making money. And so he has to do whatever he can to keep making money. And this is the only place he can get a job. And so he ends up taking it and he eventually loses this job too. But before that, we should mention that if you don't want to smell like fertilizer, (laughs) what a segue. uh, Yeah. Right. Like I I don't want to smell like fertilizer. I don't think so. I I would rather smell wonderful. Yep. Lovely. Yep. And I think the best way to do that is with uh, our friend Scentbird. Yeah. So if you haven't checked this out yet, Sempered is a monthly subscription service for like premium perfumes and colognes. And it's kind of cool because instead of having to go out and buy the whole like $60 bottle, you can just pay 15 bucks a month and get the same perfume and cologne or different ones each month delivered to you. <laughs> Are you wearing one right now? Uh, I'm not wearing one right now because I'm like doing my Sunday hobo status thing. Nice. But during the week, I do like to wear it. Uh, personally, my favorite is just like blue by Chanel. Nice. Uh, that's wonderful. Well, I'm wearing a similar named one, but by a different company. 
Oh, Dolce & Gabbana light blue. They also have a, a light blue. That one's quite nice. Yeah, that's the one I'm wearing right now. Let's just say our recording sessions smell a lot better now. <laughs> exactly. We've got uh, fancy rosé and uh, premium colognes. Yep. So we're really like... It know. used to smell like Kettle of Fire's bone broth, which we would <laughs> bathe ourselves in. Which it's, also smells great. It smells great. It's just a different smell. We can't insult a sponsor while talking about... Oh, no, no, no. I'm not okay. insulting them. It's just All a right. very... It's a much different... Right now, we smell classy. There, there's no right? bone broth scent from Scentbird right now. But we smelled manly. Yeah, manly. Yeah. It's good. Now we just smell. We smell um, sophisticated. Sophisticated. Yeah. yeah. It's a different, different world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you if you too want to smell lovely, or at least not like fertilizer, yeah, then uh, Scentbird does offer half off your first month for Made You Think listeners. Just use code Think at checkout, or I think you can go to Scentbird.com/slash. Do they have the link up? I don't think I don't they know. do. I haven't checked. To be safe, just use the coupon code. Use the coupon <laughs> code THINK at checkout, and they'll give you half off the first month. So and they have perfumes, not just clones. Perfumes, yeah, clones. It's both. Yeah. So yeah, check it out. I mean, it's, it's seven fifty to try for one month. Exactly. <laughs> you got a 30-day supply of oh, like a designer perfume. Perfumer cologne, right? Which is a great deal. Yeah. And the little carrier thing they give you for putting it on is kind of cool. Yeah. It's this little, it looks like kind of six inch by one inch cylinder. It almost looks like a vape or something. A little bit. Yeah. Like a vape. It's a little thicker than that, but. Or like a very tiny, ed- never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to ask where you're going with that. I, my sounds mind, like you got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you you twist it and then the little perfume thing pops up. You can spray yourself and then you twist it and it goes back down. You put it in your pocket, put it in your carry-on bag. Yeah, it's small enough to travel with. Super easy. TSA won't confiscate it. Exactly. TSA will not take it, hopefully. They shouldn't. Yeah. I mean, if you spray at your TSA agent. <laughs> they're not going to like that. <laughs> or maybe they will. Probably not worth trying. We do not endorse trying. <laughs> maybe, maybe they'll be into it. They're like, oh, thank you. This smells wonderful. It's a very kind thing for you to do today, made you think, listener. <laughs> but yeah, so check it out. Scentbird, think, get your first month for $7.50. Really good deal. Yeah. And we both really like it. So yeah, we'd recommend it. Yeah, we've been using, I forget the other two that I've got. A few different ones. But yeah, we have a few different ones. But yeah, it's super easy, convenient, and uh, you can try out a whole bunch of different stuff or keep ordering the same one. It's up to you. Up to you. The world is your oyster. But I think they would definitely agree with our claim that you'll smell better than a fertilizer. Than Jurgis. Yeah, Jurgis is not smelling good here. No. And in the midst of all this, he discovers that his wife is being taken advantage of by a plant manager uh, in another building. Yep. And so Jurgis does the sensible manly thing to do and runs over and proceeds to beat the shit out of this guy. Yeah. I. Uh, Beats him, you know, basically within an inch of death, gets pulled off of him, uh, gets thrown in jail for a month. And as you can expect, when the main breadwinner in a family with no social safety net gets put in jail for a month, making no money, and then having to pay the court fees in extra time afterwards. So he stays in for like three or four more days. When he leaves jail, he discovers that their house has been taken. Right. Because the family that he left behind couldn't keep paying the rent without him. Or supposedly the mortgage. Yeah, the, the mortgage. Yeah. And so the owners came back and took the house away. And here's the thing. It's been painted over. There have been boards, new boards put up, all of that. And so he knocks on the door and he meets the family living there now. And they say, no, this is a new house. What are you talking about? Yep. They have fallen for the exact same trap he did. Yep. And so now he knows it was never a new house. Right. And the play then for the, uh, I think earlier in the book, they had met somebody who was like, oh, I tricked the house company by paying them every month until the mortgage was done. Right. And that was like considered tricking because the mortgage yeah. company wanted you to not make the payment. 
so they could take it back and flip it and they could keep the down payment exactly right so yeah and then for the exact same house they would sell it as a new house and yeah as he's discovering they did that to the next family too uh it's so fucked up yeah so he lost his home and then he has to run around trying to figure out where his family is and he eventually finds them only to discover that his wife is in labor with their next child and do we just like spoil the whole plot for this one i feel like yeah i mean it's like okay since he's been getting shit on this entire book yeah so what we'll say here is that we're going to get into heavier plot spoilers now so if you really really want to read this book and don't want anything spoiled leave now go buy stuff from all of our sponsors and then you can come listen to it later after you've read the book you'll smell good you'll be healthy yeah you'll smell good you'll be healthy you'll be in ketosis you'll have delicious tea yep you'll be energized and thoughtful You'll have everything from your heart's desire on Amazon. You'll have a newsletter subscription. You'll have your name forever immortalized on the iTunes reviews for your six star rating of this show. Those will all be wonderful things. And you'll finish the book without any spoilers or you can keep going and we will just continue to spoil things because yeah. I think we have to at this point. Yeah, it's not like Alice where there's so much going on outside the plot that we can just talk about. That's also this is not that surprising of a of, this is not like a plot twist. Yeah, it's you kind of expect it. He continues to like, what is the thing that you would expect him to get shit on here? If you're like, all right, what's the worst shit that happened to Yurgis? Besides him dying, like this is the next. Yeah, here you go. Well, his wife will probably die. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens here when she's having she's going through labor. What's going to happen to the child there is not going to be a child child dies too yes so Jurgis has just gotten out of jail he's running back trying to find his family and he finds them in this other hovel only to discover that his wife is in labor she's like so skinny you can see the bones coming through her skin Jurgis has to run and try to find a midwife to help her deliver this child and he finally finds her he has to give her all the money he has she comes she's with uh ona for a day can't save her Child dies, Ona dies, and Yurgis is just grief ridden, right? Obviously. He still has his first child, thankfully, which I think we didn't talk about yet. But they, they did have one child. Right. So he still has that child and they're still together. But he's just gotten out of jail, has no money, wife is dead, second child's dead, it's just all bad shit. Right. And then we discover that the person he beat up that led to him being put in jail was one of the more powerful people in the city. And so Yurgis has been blacklisted at everything in town. And he goes and tries to get jobs and he's, you know, he's being relatively successful, like getting a couple of gigs, but then he shows up for the first day and they say, oh, you can't actually work here. I can't hire you. Yeah. And he's trying to ask them like, why, why won't you hire me? And they won't give him an answer. They'll just say, well, I can't. Right. Because he's been blacklisted. Yeah. He's been blacklisted. Right. Because this guy, Connor has a lot of power and gets him, you know, put on this list and not just in Chicago, but everywhere. Right. Right. So even if he wanted to go to another city, they would still have his name. Right. Like, obviously, a horrible situation. And then, so while this is going on, he realizes that he just can't get these same kinds of jobs anymore. So he becomes a bum. And he's kind of going into downtown Chicago instead of Packingtown. Right. Because like Packingtown, everyone knows his name and face. He can't get a job. So at least if he goes downtown, he has a shot. Well, and I think we haven't mentioned, but they mentioned earlier in the book that Packingtown, even though there are supposedly several different companies there, they're all really one company. Well, I think two. Yeah. It's like the two competitors. Browns and Browns and Durham. Durham. Yeah. And they just own everything in the city. And so you're you're really just working for one of them. Right. And I think being blacklisted by one probably also means you're blacklisted by the other. Yeah. So, yeah, I think well, they were calling it the beef trust, which means that they were I think they weren't necessarily the same company, but they collaborated. Yeah. Even though 
as I think there was a section where he was talking about how the government, according to the government, they were enemies who were at each other's throats, but really they were collaborators and set, fixed the price of beef. And you know what it makes me think of is like Time Warner and Verizon. I was just thinking the media industry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like especially the cable industry or like the internet industry. Totally. Right. Where they literally decide you can serve this area and you can serve this area and then we can each set our prices. Right. Whatever we want. But Sergis is like downtown hunting for these jobs, but he can't go from downtown back to his house in Packingtown because it's too expensive. So he has to sleep on the streets and under archways. And I guess like police offices or like police buildings would let bums sleep there after midnight or something. And so he has to, you know, try to sneak in there after midnight. And eventually, you know, he gets this job working at a harvester plant, right? Which is an awesome job. And it's like clean and there's a cafeteria and he's like so happy. And you're like, yeah, the book is looking up like good for you, Jurgis. He made it. He made it. Oh, everything's going to be great from here on out. You write it on Kindle, right? Yeah. So were you looking at the percentage of the book that was left at that point or I I knew I knew where I was. Okay. Right. Because I I mean, I for this podcast, we have to read so much. I give myself amounts I have to read each day. So I I knew where I was. (laughs) So I was reading the physical copy and uh, I've heard it said before that this is a fatal flaw of physical books is that, you know, how much of the book is left. So, you know, if things are getting too good, you know, you can't be at the end yet. Exactly. I heard this good idea that movies shouldn't release how long they are, right? Because if you have no idea how long the movie is going to be, then you're like, it actually helps. Yeah. Am I in the end of the second act? Am I in the middle of the third? Right? Like, is this still the first act? Right? Interstellar is kind of like that, where there's a couple parts where you think the movie could end. Right. But it doesn't. Yeah. Even the ending, you're kind of like, is this actually the ending? Because remember, he leaves. Yeah. Well, sorry. Spoiler. Well, I guess if you don't know the whole plot, that isn't really a spoiler. Anyway, he leaves. Yeah. You could see there being another act after that. Exactly. I, I'd heard rumors of a sequel, but I haven't seen anything talked about. Ah, That wouldn't be right. <laughs> no. I mean, it was an amazing movie, but it's amazing like in and of itself. It's amazing with a caveat. What's that? Like the whole like it was love thing. <laughs> kind of no, it wasn't it was love it was it was us no but i kind of i don't know i feel like they glossed over that last but like the like 95 percent of the movie was incredible i love yeah. the movie and then the last five percent i was just like you know he's playing with the strings in the rubik's cube yeah of- i was just like they could have done a better job of this yeah that part was a little it was just like it was so scientifically accurate it felt like up until that point remember because they were talking about the delays yeah. and the time lapses and i was just like this is so good like neil degrasse tyson can get behind this and then like the last part i was like oof he's gonna be shaking his head at this part no no no. i was gonna say the last part is when neil degrasse tyson smokes a lot of weed <laughs> and gets on twitter <laughs> and starts making <laughs> shit up does he actually smoke weed yeah, he does. He's talked about it in interviews and stuff. Okay, because I was going to say, I believe it based on how his tweets are sometimes. But he'd be a good person to have on a tangent episode. I feel you like. got to ask David. Yeah, yeah, I know. Or we could do what he did, which is the cold email for us. Cold email, yeah. That was pretty impressive. It's pretty impressive. North Star Podcast. Shout out North Star Podcast. David Perel. Yep. That's the David who we've referenced a few times in this show before. I think we give him shout outs. Yeah. I don't know if we ever said North Star Podcast. I think though. we did last time, yeah. That was when we were giving him a hard time for not reading Discipline and Punish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so Jurgis gets this wonderful harvester job and then the book ends and he lives happily ever after. And that's where you can stop listening. No, just kidding. All right. Just kidding. No. Uh, eventually, he, he's only there for nine days. And then they show up one day and they find out that the entire 
branch of the business working on harvesters is shut down because it's not enough demand. Right. So they've built enough of the machines and now they don't need any more built for a while until demand picks up again. So they're all out of work. And this is the problem with these factories and the number of immigrants is that there would be a few hundred immigrants showing up at the factory every day for jobs. And so there was no need to keep people when you didn't have work for them. You could just throw them out. Well, it was like the contracting, right? It, yeah. It's like if you can imagine, it would be like if, you know, let's say on average in New York, there are 3000 Uber drivers, let's say in a given day, because there's that much demand. But then tomorrow, for whatever reason, there's only 500 people who are requesting rides. You don't need 3000 drivers anymore. Right. You only need 500. So the other 2500 are like, they're not going to get paid shit out of luck. Yeah. I mean, in this situation, it's like we're paying 500 or paying 3000 or paying 500. And then I guess the modern version of it is we're paying 3000 the salary of 3000 or we're paying 3000 the salary of 500. Right. And it's but they're both bad. Right. I've heard it's similar to this exact situation that they described in the book. I've heard it's similar for illegal immigrants still who are like, you know, there's like the migrant work. Have you seen this? Like there's like areas where um, typically in like border states, not so much where we are like in New York, but there are like areas where firms who need physical labor will basically pick up workers in the morning. Yeah. And then they get work for the day, but that's it. There's like no guarantee beyond that. There's nothing beyond that, right? It's just like literally you are working for that day. You get paid in cash at the end of the day and that's it. Um, yeah, it's like still the reality for some people. It's not the majority of people's experiences, right? But like there are still people who I'm sure in other countries, people still have labor situations like this. Like I'd imagine in Asia, it's probably in some ways, like I, I don't know how Foxconn or some of these yeah. factories are, but like some of the stories you hear, right? About like Nike factories or some of the clothing factories doesn't sound that different. No, it sounds very similar. It's not yeah. meatpacking, right? Like, but in terms of the security, in terms of like, how the pay works in terms of the um, power that the worker has, it sounds a lot more like this than what we have in America today. Well, and that's where some of the like middle American narrative around, oh, these immigrants are coming and taking our jobs is actually kind of true mm. in that if you're an immigrant who is willing to live at this very you know substandard subsistence level, and work these, you know, really unfair contract style jobs where you just get picked up and you go to the chicken plant and, you know, pluck feathers for $2 an hour paid in cash at the end of the day, then, I mean, and if you're living in certain parts of the country, you do see that happen. Right. And if you're expecting a fair, safe job, but these companies can get people to do it in unfair like contracty ways. Yeah, then you're screwed. Yeah, then you're screwed. You're not getting it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where it's kind of like you can almost sympathize with those people who are in that situation of like, whoa, you know, this is really unfair to me. Right. Because right? I don't want to, for lack of a better term, stoop to that level of. Or technically break the law, right? Because you're not working below minimum wage, but they are. Yeah. Well, they're able to work below minimum wage because they're not legal. Yeah. In some ways, right? Like, well, not in some ways. That is why they're able to work for below minimum wage. Right. They're either illegal immigrants who want to get paid cash or they're legal who just need to make money. Right. And most Americans will not work for that little. And it's weird because then if you look at it from the company's perspective, it's totally logical that they're taking this, you know, very much low wage labor because it's better for the company. Right. It's like it's one of those things that I thought in this book, he did a very good job of, of showing how it's not necessarily the individual's fault for this, all this stuff. It's like the system. 
Yeah. I think he showed how those, what are those people who like set the pace on the factory floor? Oh yeah. They call like pacemakers or pacemakers or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like they make everybody work harder, but he made the point several times that he's like the, you know, if they don't do as good of a job setting the pace that their bosses are telling them to set, they're going to lose their jobs. Right. And it's like, it just kind of shows how it's like, I'm sure it's the same situation if you go all the way up. So just kind of showed how it's not like a system that can be like going back to leverage points. Uh, it's not like a system that can be fixed by just replacing the person who's at the top of the system. Mm. It's like the system itself. And the incentives too. And the incentives that are fucked up. Because the the sense I got from this book and the sense that I get now in the current system is that businesses aren't penalized. Individuals are. Right. Right. Like you don't hear that much about businesses getting in trouble for using illegal immigrants. But you hear about illegal immigrants getting deported all the time. Right. So it's a skewed incentive structure, really. Exactly. So businesses have no reason not to. And also, I mean, here's the thing, right? If you save $10 million a year using illegal immigrants instead of legal, and then you occasionally get a $10,000 fine for hiring an illegal immigrant, that is such an easy cost benefit analysis. We talked about an Atlas drug, right? It's like the rules that are there. It's like they can be broken. There's a price to breaking them if you get caught. Yeah. So then it's just a math, a math equation of like, what do I have to pay to break right. this rule? Oh, that's easy. That's so right. obviously the economically smart thing to do. Right. Then they're going to do it. And I mean, obviously, like, it'd be great if everyone was, you know, nice and followed the rules. And well, as we're going to cover next week with Elephant in the Brain. Yeah. <laughs> well, teaser. If you're on our email list, you would have already known that uh, several weeks ago, actually. <laughs> Because yeah, the email went out. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah. So um, we're going to cover why like people like humans, as much as we all like to think we're nice and, you know, we follow all the rules and we're cooperative. It's not always true. It's usually not true, actually. Usually not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and that's that's the weird thing is, you know, reading a book like this and recognizing how horrible a situation it is. And also how the incentives can lead to it ending up that way almost necessarily. Right. Like it makes sense that this stuff happens in some ways because the rules allow for it or encourage it. Yeah, the rules allow for it. And there are, um, I guess, insufficient like negative consequences to breaking those rules. Which to be fair, I mean, that was one thing that came up in Atlas was that the government's job is to protect its citizens. Right. That actually is in line with this. Exactly. Yeah. I think that the protection against these bad business practices of, you know, putting poison bread in the meat (laughs) and stuff like that would fall under a libertarian Randian view of government. I think that's understandable. Yeah. And then I think that balances out with what we've seen in modern times of organic food. Yeah. Right. The government didn't need to say food has to be organic, but the customers have been voting with their feet to the point of Walmart having organic food. Same thing of like non-GMO. Yeah. Like so many foods are non-GMO now. It, well, Taleb kind of predicted that, right? Yeah. Where he said it's going to be tyranny of the minority where, you know, some percentage of people will not buy food if it's GMO and the vast majority just don't care. Right. But then from the company's perspective, it's just in your interest to satisfy the non-GMO crowd. Exactly. So I, and I think that's where it kind of balances out is that, I mean, the, the market can take care of a lot of problems. Right. But it also helps to have some rules against. Well, and here's where here's where it comes in, like to your organic example. Right. If there was no third party checking if what's labeled organic is actually organic, 
then you would have a labeling misincentive problem where everybody labels it organic. Yeah. But it's not actually organic or it, you know, just just, just not even close to organic. Right? Well, and there's also a difference, to be fair, of between poisoning people and not being as good for people. Right. Well, actually, I was going to give a second example of the non-GMO stuff. Yeah. yeah. So non-GMO is not regulated really by the government. That's a, a nonprofit right? That gives that oh. non-GMO project. Have you okay. seen that? Like that stamp? I've seen the stamp. It's yeah, on yeah. tons of different foods. That's not a government organization. That's like a mm. non-profit as far as I know, at least. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so he shows up one day and discovers that the works are closed without notice, right? Like they've, he has no idea if he's ever going to come back to working at the harvester plant. Right. And again, no protection, nothing, right? They're all fired because they can be replaced so easily. There's all these people lining up at the door for work every day. And so he has to go home again. But this whole time he's been living away from his, well, I guess not his family, but his like- Well, his son, I guess, is there. Yeah, his son and the people he was traveling with. And so he goes back to them to tell them that his job is gone. And when he shows up, he discovers that his son is dead. Right. Like he- drowned in the street playing around in the sewers and stuff and i guess the kid was only like a year and a half or two really young yeah, he was really young yeah uh but out playing in the street and drowned which is i mean it's like awful unmanageable well on top of all the stuff that's happened to him yeah his wife has died now his kid has died his potential second child died in childbirth like you know he's lost all of his family and so he leaves right but he has nothing left he has nothing left and so he just kind of runs and gets on a train and sneaks into a train to be right. clear, right? Sneaks into a train and rides it as far out of town as he can. And then he just keeps walking and he becomes a bum for a while, which I guess was a fairly common thing to do in the summers. Right, because you won't freeze to death. You won't freeze to death. Yeah, you can, you know, seal food from whatever farms you find or you can work for brief periods. You can travel around in the trolley or in the railroad cars there's this whole like hobo signage carved into gates and stuff so mm. you know if houses are nice or not so you can get around and he just does this for a whole summer and honestly this is like one of the happiest parts of the book yeah <laughs> he's, he's just like swimming in streams and hanging out on farms and you know getting food when he can well it goes back to that whole like peasant slash hunter-gatherer type thing in a weird way this is yeah. hunter-gatherer this is kind of the hunter-gatherer in the modern era yeah i mean he's there's not so much hunting but there is definitely the gathering part lots of gathering Lots of gathering. Lot, there's no like constraints on his time. He's not staying till 1 a.m. and going back at 7 a.m., right? Like, well, and the big, you know, shitty but also big thing, too, is that he know his family has all died. Now, right. Right. His yeah. wife has died. His children are dead. Like, there's no nobody depending on him. So he is just, you know, totally free wandering around middle America. It's like great for, you know, 20 pages. And then <laughs> winter is coming. Right. And he needs money to survive the winter. And so he starts trying to go back into the city. And I mean, he kind of gets a job for a little bit. What job does he get again? He comes back into Chicago and he finds something. Yeah, but it's only for a very brief period of time, right? Well, he, he ends up back in jail somehow. How does he end up back in jail? And it was only for like a month this time, I think, right? No, it was only like 10 days this time. Last time it was a month. This time it's only 10 days. I don't know why that part completely just <laughs> left your mind. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not mine too. Uh, okay, so he has to go back to the city for the winter right. to try to make money to survive. He gets there. He's out on the streets begging. This drunk Irish dude starts talking to him, takes Jurgis to his house, which is like a palace, 
right? You know, the guy's incredibly rich, is giving Yurgis like free food and champagne and hanging out with him. And at one point gives Yurgis a hundred dollar bill right. to pay the taxi with. But Yurgis doesn't pay the taxi with it. The butler pays the taxi when they get to the house. And then when Yurgis eventually like has to leave the house, he goes to a bar to try to get the hundred dollar bill changed. When he tries to get it changed, the bartender takes it, asks Yurgis, you know, oh, do you want a drink too? Yurgis says, yeah, I'll take a beer. The bartender gives him a beer and then gives him 95 cents, right? So, so fucked up. So fucked up. And Yurgis is like, well, where's my other $99? And the bartender's like, what other $99, right? Just keeps the $100 bill pretending it was a one. And Yurgis basically tries to kill the guy. Understandably. Understandably. Let's, let's yeah. be clear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is enough money for Yurgis to live on for like a year. Yeah. Right. And this guy has just taken it. So he's like breaking a bottle, trying to kill this guy, he's beating the shit out of him. And eventually. And Yurgis is described as like a very strong yeah, young man, basically. One of his arms is broken right now because he got hit by like a trolley car or something while working in a coal mine. Some other major tragedy. It's just an, another tragedy that happened in the book. And so he beats the shit out of this bartender with one arm. And eventually the police have to come pull him off the bartender. They take him to jail. He goes to jail for 10 days. But while he's in jail, he meets a friend he made the first time he was in jail. Yep. Who turns out to be a, a criminal, right? A, a con man type. I don't know what was the right term. Just, you know, a guy who makes his money like breaking the law. Yeah. And so when Jurgis and he get out. Con man. Yeah, con man, I guess. Like Jurgis gets into the underground. And the first thing that he and this guy do when they're out is like beat up this random guy in the street and steal $130 or so from the guy's wallet. Yeah. And this is kind of Jurgis's introduction to the underworld of Chicago. And this is really the part of the book where he is like, in his own, right? He's very successful. He's making a lot of money. He's getting a lot of power. He seems happy, right? Or he seems like he's in great shape personally. I think it's like, it's also Sinclair's way of showing that, uh, I think in Sinclair's opinion, the way to get ahead in America, right, is to be part of the underworld, basically. <laughs> well, and that the only way to not be starving and dying is to start breaking the law. Right. Which is, I think, his way of showing that the system is messed up. Yeah. That the only way to succeed in the system is actually to go outside the system. Exactly. So, but yeah, you're right. I think this is the part where he's personally doing the best. Yeah, he's living his best life in a way. <laughs> and so for a, a good section of the book, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a criminal and he's enjoying doing it. And he's very successful. He's making tons of money. Yep. And then eventually all of the beef packing people go on strike and they're all on strike. The A lot of the shady business stuff has to get put on hold because I guess the people running the shady business stuff have to deal with the strikes. And so the person Yurgis is kind of reporting to tells him like, hey, take advantage of this and get in with one of the meatpacking plants. Yeah. And so he goes and he says, hey, I'm here to work. Right. He's like personally being a strike breaker. He's saying, you know, I'm not going to go on strike. And so they take him in and they're paying him like $3 a day. Right. Because they don't have anybody, really. They have no one else. which is, And it's a huge amount of money for him. Right. Well, it was a huge amount of money. <laughs> yeah. Not as much anymore. He's been making hundreds of dollars, you know, stealing from people. Right. <laughs> but he's got all that money saved up. And then he's making $3 a day doing, you know, basic meat packing work. And then they decide to make him a foreman. Right. So like being in charge of everyone. Yep. And, you know, he's in a great situation. He's like in a great spot. For a period of time. For a period of time. 
as this whole book goes <laughs> as this whole book goes right he's got this good four-man job and he's like leading a team and getting paid really well and then he runs into connor again right the guy who took advantage of his wife back earlier in the book and you know once again urius starts to beat the living shit out of him and he, he gets captured again at the scene police take him away and then his friend comes to bail him out of jail which they do to each other all the time they're always bailing each other out of jail right because the cops are corrupt but it turns out that connor is an incredibly influential, important person, and they just can't get Jurgis out of this. Right, and so they post his bail just so he can, you know, get out briefly, and then he has to flee Chicago. He's like leave and never get come out. back. Yeah, and he kind of gets on a train, rides it to the absolute end of town, and is kind of hanging out in that area again when he runs into what was the woman's relation again? She's like a friend. Yeah, something like that. Like. She wasn't family, I don't think. Not family, yeah. yeah was, but somebody from his past. Right. And he literally just runs into her on the street when he's out begging. Yeah. And she tells him that Maria, from the beginning of the book, is working as a prostitute. And, well, she doesn't tell him that she's a prostitute. She tells him that she's living in this house nearby. Which is a brothel. Which is a brothel, yeah. And so Jurgis goes try to find her. You know, as he's there, the police raid it and stuff. And Jurgis finds out it's a brothel, all of this. Uh, but he's, you know, he's he's found the family group from the beginning of the book again. Right. At least somewhat back together. As much as they can be. As much as they can be. Yeah. The ones who are still alive. Like half of them are dead at this point. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy. But the remaining group is back together. And this is kind of where the book starts to slow down. Or dive straight into the socialism side. <laughs> yeah. Dive straight into the socialist propaganda. Yeah. Because once he finds them and is living with them and he and once he discovers the socialist party, everything kind of stagnates plot wise. And there's no real resolution, cliffhanger, rising, falling, whatever action. No, it becomes basically, as you said, socialist propaganda. Yeah. Like that's not even us being biased, I would say. That's us basically saying what the plot becomes like the, the plot stops, really. Yeah, there's really no more development after this point because he joins the Socialist Party and then gets a job as a bellhop in a hotel. And it turns out that the owner of the hotel is a member of the Socialist Party as well. So they're best buddies. And then that job is just safe for him forever. Right. He's not going anywhere. There's no more risk or concern there. And yeah, I mean, I don't know how much of the socialist stuff to get into because it's weird. I mean, I'll read a section here, right? Because a couple of things happen. There's a guy giving a speech on socialism that Jurgis goes to see. And then there's him hanging out in like a living room with a couple of, I guess, older, more educated guys talking about socialism with some women. Yeah. And he's kind of like being a fly on the wall. And I think this is from Jurgis listening to the first speech where the guys or Jurgis is thinking and was it not plain that if the people cut off the share of those who merely owned, the share of those who worked would be much greater? That was as plain as two and two make four. And it was the whole of it, absolutely the whole of it. And yet there were people who could not see it, who would argue about everything else in the world, right? And that's kind of the argumentative style of this section right? of socialism is obviously the answer and anybody who thinks otherwise is just blind or lazy or greedy or greedy yeah I, which is why i think it's hard to take the arguments very seriously so there are some things that i kind of wish i 
better understood the distinction between socialism and communism. Okay. Because there was one section in here, which I see that's in your notes as well, which was in mine, which I was like, huh, maybe there's a distinction that I'm not aware of. So it's the part that says, after the revolution, all the intellectual, artistic, and spiritual activities of men would be cared for by such free associations. Romantic novelists would be supported by those who like to read romantic novels, and impressionist painters would be supported by those who like to look at impressionist pictures. And the same with preachers, scientists, editors, actors, and musicians. That sounds like Patreon. Yeah, a little bit. Right? Yeah. Like, I don't know. When I read that part, I was like, wait a minute. Okay. Like, I don't actually see anything wrong with that. Yeah. But I think where I have the issue, which I'm not sure if that's a communism problem or a socialism problem, is the force part, right? If like, see, in this case, it's like free associations. It's like if I like to look at impressionist paintings, right, I can contribute to that. That's like if I like someone's podcast, I can contribute to their podcast, right? Like that to me seems fine. I don't see anything wrong with that. It's voluntary. Where I have a problem is like if we as a people are required to support something that's like should be a free association thing. Yeah. Right. Then I find that to be kind of contentious and something I don't really like. Yeah. And that's where it gets hard too. Right. Right. Well, is there, what is the distinction between socialism and communism? I've actually never dove deep into that. I know they're obviously related, but yeah, I'm not actually 100% sure. As I understand it, socialism is like full means of survival are, you know, controlled and provided by the government. So is that like food, healthcare, water? Food, healthcare, housing, water, all of that. And then luxury goods are sort of up to you. Okay. And communism is everything that's provided by the government. Mm. But I, I could be wrong about that. Got it. I think like part of the problem is like all the societies that have tried to implement communism all didn't implement pure communism. Right. Or so they say. <laughs> so they say. I was going to say that that's a very like pro Marxist argument. Right? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm trying to give them the best like argument yeah. possible. Right. Is like that's what everybody always says. So like what I'm curious to find out is like where did it go wrong? Right. And like in the ideal sense, what does it look like? Like if you were to fully I- like give the idealistic version of what that society looks like. Because like libertarianism is very easy to find like what the idealistic scenario looks like. There's just no government. Right. Right. It's like a free for all. It's like free for all with like associations, companies, like free association effectively is the only form of organization. There's no coercive form of organization. Then there's the Ayn Rand version, which is like, or I guess the version that's espoused in Atlas Shrugged, which is the government exists, but it's just there to really protect citizens. Yeah. Which technically is libertarian as well. Yeah. There's different degrees of libertarianism. Yeah. Yeah, I guess like anarchism is no government. Anarchism is pure free association. Right. Yeah. Libertarianism, I think. Libertarian is, you know, policing and protection. Okay. You are allowed to, you know, swing your fist as much as you want, as long as you don't hit another person. Right. Okay. You can, you know, if you want to take a bunch of heroin or LSD or like run around naked, you can do whatever you want. As long as you don't harm another human being. Yeah. As long as you're not, you know preventing someone else from doing something or making someone else do something. So anarchism is the no government. Anarchism is the no policing. Yes. Right. Like okay. no government, no policing, no protection, no military, Just no everyone do what they want. State of nature. Yeah. Got it. So we're like back in the jungle days, basically yeah. tribal days. Yeah. So where I'm curious is like, what is the ideal socialist argument or ideal communist argument where like, what would the society look like? Yeah. Because right? people always say that about the Soviet Union. It's like, well, they didn't really implement it properly. Right. Or like Venezuela didn't really implement it properly. Cuba didn't really like. So what is the maybe it hasn't happened yet. Right. But like what is the ideal in their mind society? 
yeah. and how would it like what is the the way it's set up? The funny response to that I've heard a couple times is, well, if implementing it halfway killed 100 million people, I can only imagine what implementing it all the way would. <laughs> I'm do. not saying it's a good idea, right? I'm not, <laughs> no, not I, arguing I know, that I at know. all, right? But yeah, like I'm just curious what like is the strongman version of their argument, basically. Yeah. Right? Like, because they always have that defense of like, well, okay, Cuba didn't do it right. I didn't do it right. I didn't do it right. Yeah, like, if it was just done, if I was just in charge, right? Like, it would have worked out well. You know that meme of the guy walking with, like, his girlfriend and then looking back at the other girl? (laughs) Yeah. Have you seen the one where it's like, the guy looking back has like socialists written on him and the girl walking away is labeled like imaginary country. But then the girlfriend is copied and pasted like 20 times. And it's all the names of all the socialist communist countries that have failed. So you have like North Korea. Like, yeah, like North Korea, Cuba, like Soviet <laughs> Union, Venezuela, like, like, Venezuela oh all of that. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of like, you know. So I 100% buy yeah. that part of the argument. I'm just. But what is the strong man? I'm trying to strongman their argument, right? Like, I actually, I think it's like not possible to do that system because of human nature. That's my thing with it, too. And I think we're going to get into that more next week right yeah but yeah i think there are like that's one of those things where the intellectual part of your brain you know what i've in religious way of speaking right that's like the lucifer part of your brain that Mm. thinks that reason is superior to everything else right like i think that part of your brain could find socialism or communism very intriguing right but the animal part of your brain the part that is sort of hidden to our consciousness right like that part doesn't really jive with that yeah it's a great idea in theory on paper yeah yeah on paper it's like mathematically it works out much better than capitalism yep but it's the same problem with economics right like humans aren't rational actors exactly it's a flawed assumption yeah basically yeah so i i don't know i mean the the strongman version is based on those assumptions that right. we can subvert our self-interest in order to like maximize the good of the community and the yeah. collective in the long term but that just, you know, it's never played out successfully historically. No. Right. Which is, I think, why it's so hard. Yeah. It's almost like assuming we have different hardware than we actually do. Yeah. Or that we can completely override our hardware with our software. Yeah. Right. Which, as much as we want to, we are never really able to do. Right. It's like, if that were true, then you could just say, oh, I'm going on a diet and you would never break that diet <laughs> right. ever. Right. Right. But that's not, that's not how it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's 100%. I find actually uh, George Orwell is really good for this type of thing, even though for a while he was a socialist. I think for much of his life, he was a socialist and he definitely had socialistic sympathies, let's say. I find that like he has a lot of strongman arguments against socialism. Oh, okay. In his essays or? Uh, In his essays, yeah. And he brings that up a lot where like the human nature part of like, it would be great if we were all blank slates and could just like override our nature, but like, that's just not how we are. I mean, Animal Farm is kind of about that. It's like exactly what Animal Farm is about, really. I haven't read it, no. Oh, really? Okay. Well, it's kind of like how, I mean, in Animal Farm, the animals overthrow their human leaders, basically, right? But then- the pigs become the leaders and they start acting exactly like the humans. Yeah. So his point is basically there is an underlying structure that kind of exists and it almost doesn't matter who is in that quote top position. They're going to act that certain way. It's kind of like Jordan Peterson's thing. Yeah. Right. And it's like there's always going to be a dominance hierarchy. I haven't heard him bring up Orwell that much, but I actually would not be surprised if he's read a lot of Orwell. Yeah. Or if they're drawing from the same pools. Well, there's a lot of really similar things. In a weird, I don't know if you know much about Peterson's biography, 
but I was reading something about him recently where he was actually a member of the Socialist Party. Really? Yeah, in his younger days. Interesting. Which is similar to Orwell. Yeah. Orwell was as well. And I think there's something about that where it's like the intellectual part of your brain finds that very satisfying and seductive. But then you realize after a certain point, it's just like, it's just, it's great on paper, but it just doesn't happen. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I found that out about Peterson recently and I was like, huh. It kind of makes some sense. I mean, it sounds kind of like just top-down stuff in general, right? It's on paper. It works out much better than bottoms-up messy chaos. But in practice, the bottoms-up messy chaos ends up succeeding. Well, yeah, because it's like more in line with the underlying order of things that already exists. Yeah. There's all the things you can't quantify put into numbers and like rigid structure, right? There's so much... It's like just because it can be counted doesn't mean it counts. Right. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's Warren Buffett. And just because it can't be counted doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? Yeah. And I think we have that tendency to over-focus on the things that we can put into spreadsheets and like clear rules, Yep. which can be dangerous. Yeah, I mean, companies fall into that problem all the time. But I mean, I think with with the socialism stuff that he's talking about here, it's like becomes a... um, very preachy last section of the book. <laughs> Let's put it that way. That was just really the problem I had with it so much is, and I, I'm sure some of this reaction comes from naturally like- Comes from our own biases, I'm sure, right? Yeah, I'm sure this part our of it. privilege. But just the way that, you know, he is preaching socialism versus how Rand was preaching capitalism in Atlas Shrugged. Right. In Atlas Shrugged, it was much more like, you know, you, you had heroes who were- living up to it and like doing it. Right. Whereas in this book, there's no like socialist hero. Right. That's true, actually. And there's no idyllic society showing you. Well, hero in some sense is almost like completely the opposite of what they're preaching. I guess. Yeah. Right? In some ways. But it's it's just like, hey, you should feel sorry and pitiful for this person. Therefore, this idea is great. And that is not a good argumentative tactic. Right. Right. Like it doesn't make you excited about socialism. It's it also makes... not a viral way of spreading your idea, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, you're not like, who is the poster child of your philosophy? Exactly. Is it like, I don't know, Elon Musk or something, right? Versus versus like, I don't know, the most- This poor Lithuanian immigrant who's like been shot on his whole life and his whole family yep. died, right? Like, obviously that's terrible. And I don't want that to happen to anyone, but that's not an exciting character to get behind right. as the figurative leader of your movement. Well, and some of that probably goes back to power of myth. Right. Mm-hmm. In that, like, we are just drawn for whatever reason. I don't want to speculate on our brain structures or whatever, or our ancient history or, you know, whatever the reason might be, but we are drawn to heroes yeah, for whatever reason. And this type of argument just is kind of, there is no hero. Yeah. So it makes it hard to really latch on to that, which, you know, to be fair, that might be why this book, you know, the real impact was the meat industry. Right. Might be that's the reason, right? So it didn't do a good job arguing the socialist stuff, but exposing the meat industry, it did a great job. And the fact that he worked in those plants and sort of had skin in the game and was, you know, on the ground, it was so impactful that it forced that change. But the socialism stuff, it was just like, I mean, this is the second time I read the book. Both times, it's like that part wasn't impactful to me much at all. No. Anyway, still a great story. Definitely. I would still recommend people read the story. It is a good book. Yeah good novel and it's i mean it's a pretty accessible book i think it's actually um i mean if not it's very close to being out of copyright yeah it's very cheap yeah it's very cheap i think i got the physical copy for like four bucks or something it was really inexpensive 
months. So yeah, so there's not really much excuse for not reading it. No. It's also good, especially if you have been really deep in the, you know, I don't know, I don't want to speculate on our, uh, on our listenership, but especially if you've been very deep in like the free market libertarian side, like reading Sovereign Individual or, right. you know, just been really down, you know, Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged, right? If you've been down that side, it's a good way to balance out. Like, here's the other side of yeah. some of these arguments. Here's the the side of it that you don't see as much kind of suffering at the bottom of the... Right. I mean, it's kind of like I actually this time reading the book, when the first time I read it, I hadn't really, you know, the, the gig economy, you know, quote unquote, was like just getting started. Mm-hmm. Now it's obviously very well developed. I had a different perspective reading it this time, mm. right? Because it's like now it's very clear that like, you know, an Uber driver, for example, has like no protection and that's part of the deal, right? But I just had never thought about that when the first time I read the book, it just like didn't even cross my mind because I probably had taken Uber like a handful of times in my life at that point. Well, it's like, have you seen those Fiverr ads? Yeah. yeah. In New York? Yeah. Yeah, those are terrifying. I don't even know why they like advertise like that. Like it's like, I get shit done, but it's like, yeah, it's like if you have coffee for breakfast, right? Yeah. Like if you care more about getting shit done than getting sleep, right? It's it's all these very dystopian. Yes, dystopian in their own ads. Wage slave, like propaganda-y ads. I mean, they're so strange, right? Maybe some people are like, yeah, I'm a doer, right? Like doers we trust, right? But that is a very... Yeah, like 1984. You know, it reminded me of his view in uh, Jurgis's view in the beginning of the book. The like, I will work harder. Yeah, I will work harder. I will work harder. Like, I will continue to trade my time for $5 an hour. Like, that is the solution. So, yep. Mm, that's, <laughs> yeah, it's not a life. There's just not enough hours either. Yeah. Really, if you start adding it up, right? It's like. like Fiverr is definitely one of the worst examples of this. Uh, yeah. Upwork kind of is too. But Upwork can be better because people, I mean, of course, like, this is going to make me sound bad, but like people can charge more. But the problem is you won't show up when people do their searches and sort via different. Like, but what I was going to say is the creepy thing with Upwork is if you are doing work as a freelancer on Upwork, doing hourly right. stuff, you have to install Upwork software on your computer that takes a full screen screenshot every like minute or two of what you're doing. That's pretty creepy. And then follows your mouse movements to rate your activity level to make sure you're not. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. They give you like a one to 10 score of. Oh my God. Like activity. And then as the client, you get those reports whenever they log their hours. So you can see just how much they're actually working or look through their screenshots if they're actually working on your stuff that they're billing you for. I've never looked at those reports. Dude, that's creepy as shit. But I can imagine there's some people who are like, mm, I see in your you know thing here, you weren't looking at my stuff for this point, so I'm not going to pay this hour, right? It's just like the meatpacking stuff. Wow, dude, that is, yeah. that's fucked up. It's like very dystopian. I think we've talked Fiverr and Upwork out of sponsoring this podcast. Yeah, I think so. Sorry, guys. <laughs> well, to be fair, I use Upwork all the time and I love it, but I always do fixed price. Yeah. Or I never check the hour. That makes so much more sense. Yeah. It's so much better. Um, Or actually, I use it to source freelancers and then I hire them outside Upwork and pay them there. (laughs) Sorry, Upwork. Sorry, Upwork. But hey, it's just a better way to work. I didn't know about the screenshot thing. That's really creepy. It's really creepy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know we're like equally part of this problem, right? Like, and that's the thing. It's like, I think Sinclair did a good job throughout the book of showing how it's not like each individual who's involved in the system is kind of just following whatever incentives they have. Right. And in kind of in our sense too, we're doing the same thing as business owners right now. 
it's like we do what we can to maximize our profit. Yeah. And if the Upwork option is there, we're going to use it. You're going to use it. Right. Yeah. And so like, I mean, that's why this book has been so useful for me in terms of like seeing where there is a true role for government. Mm. Like I can see why that would like a government would exist to correct for exactly that or yeah. exactly what we just said, where as business owners, if the option exists and it's there and it's legal, we'll probably go do it. We're going to take it. So that's why like rules, you know, and safeguards and things like that. Certain amounts of legislation are good. Yeah. Anyway, if you enjoyed the Atlas Shrugged episode, this is a good book to go read. Or if you enjoyed this one, you should probably also go read or or listen to the Atlas Shrugged episode. That too. Yeah. But aside from all that, I suppose we should mention if you don't want to smell like fertilizer again, <laughs> check out Scentbird. Scentbird.com. Use code THINK and you get half off your first month. It's like what seven fifty or something if you do that. Yeah, seven fifty yeah. for trying out a designer perfume. That's so worth it. Oh, that's no brainer. Yeah. No brainer, especially if you're working a fertilizer plant. Yeah, especially then. <laughs> also, if you have been eating like poisoned canned beef and all of that, you need to uh, <laughs> reconstitute your gut health. Then I would recommend Kettle and Fire Bone Broth. Hundred percent grass fed beef. Grass fed beef bone broth, delicious and chicken. Yeah. So not grass fed chicken because that doesn't make sense, but uh, they don't eat grass. But uh, healthy chickens, yep. farm raised, antibiotic free, very healthy. Yep. Uh, their broth. So anyway, kettle fire bone broth, awesome. Definitely check it out. They give up to 30% off, I want to say, or 28%. Yeah. Free shipping plus free shipping. Plus free shipping. If you use the code think or kettleandfire.com slash think. They have a mushroom chicken flavor now on their site. It was exclusively through Whole Foods for a while. Now it's on their site. It's amazing. Highly recommend that one. That's a good one to drink, right? Yeah, great to drink. Just pour it in a mug, heat it up, like 30 seconds to a minute, you're good to go. Yeah. So that stuff's so good for your skin, for your hair. Yeah, skin, gut, hair, heart, brain, all good. Thoughts, tangents, <laughs> all good things. Uh, so yeah, that's Kettle and Fire. Uh, Perfect Keto, perfectketo.com slash think or just use Code THINK, 20% off any of your keto-related products. You know, if you're actually trying to do ketosis, which you can learn all about on the Perfect Keto blog, if you're trying to do ketosis, they've got the exogenous ketone supplement, which helps with that. Or if you just want some, you know, really good fats to supplement your diet, right, then they've got the MCT oil powder and regular MCT oil, which are both wonderful. Yep. If you're going to get the powder, then the matcha is delicious. You could drink that straight, put it in your smoothies, uh, and you're good to go. There is Four Sigmatic, foursigmatic.com slash think. And I should mention too, they are good friends. Yeah, our good friends. They just sent us some new samples here. One sec. Seems like they're coming out with a lot of new stuff lately. Yeah, they've had a few new things, a few new things recently. So they just sent us, they just sent us these new, new samples, which have been getting nothing but great reviews. There's the golden latte mushroom mix which has uh, shiitake mushroom and turmeric. And they've also got a chai latte mushroom mix with turkey tail and reishi. So these are both kind of like along the trend of their coffee flavored mushroom elixirs, but neither of these have caffeine. So you can have them any time of day. Oh, they don't have any caffeine. Yeah, no caffeine. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, yeah, because reishi is supposed to be relaxing, right? Yeah, reishi is relaxing. And then I think the shiitake and turmeric is kind of just like, little like nice invigorating supposed to be really good for your skin Hmm. actually and then the the chai latte with turkey tail and reishi is like for gut health right so different benefits different four sigmatic products these are great obviously the mushroom coffee is our kind of go-to which is wonderful we have that all the time it's good tangent it's a tangent mix good tangent fuel (laughs) so 
Check all those out. Forstigmatic.com slash think. You get 15% off. Uh, this stuff is wonderful. Try that. Yeah, we have it all the time. All the time. All the time. And then the other thing that I have all the time, and I, I assume Neil is going to start having all the time, is uh, Ooh, yes. cup and leaf tea. So you can go to cupandleaf.com slash think, and you'll get 20% off your first order. You can also just plug in code think at checkout and get 20% off. So this is actually my personal tea company now. And if you want the ones that Neil and I like the most, we would recommend the Cream Earl Grey. Or Lapsang Souchong. Exactly. Lapsang Souchong is the other one. That one's yeah. a little bit weirder. It's almost like the whiskey of black teas. Yeah. It, it's an odd taste, but it's delicious. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's well, uh, you either are going to love it or you're going to hate it. But I highly recommend it because I love it. Well, and if you want to try both of those, mm, a sampler, you can get the black tea sampler, which will have the cream Earl Grey, the Lapsang Souchong, the three year aged Pu'er, which is also delicious. It's a very smooth Pu'er. It's not as bitter as some of the other ones and our English breakfast. And so you can try all four of those and then just order more of whichever one uh, you like. So that's cupandleaf.com slash think or just plug in code thing at checkout. And aside from that, well, you can take some money from Jeff Bezos. Exactly. Take some money from Jeff Bezos. Defund his rocket company. <laughs> uh, if you go to majorthinkpodcast.com slash support and click through to the Amazon page, anything you buy on Amazon in 24 hours, we get 4% or 5% something like of that, that, something like yeah. that. Yeah. It doesn't cost you anything else. It just gives us a little cut of yeah. Amazon's revenue. Keeps your price the same. Yeah. Your price is the same. It just helps support the podcast. So anytime you're buying something on Amazon, click through there, help us out. Yep. Greatly appreciate that. Sign up for the email list. We just sent out a newsletter. I know. Well, today, but for you listening like three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, we send them every, well, every once in a while. Every once in a while is probably the It's right. a wait but why schedule. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although I did realize we sent, after I sent this one, I realized that we sent one in April too about the listener episode. All right. And we sent one in March. We're getting monthly. It's pretty good. Yeah, three straight months. You guys got an email. Moving in the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> but still, we're not committing to a monthly schedule. No. Don't want to put that much pressure on ourselves. But hey, that's a lot. The so. only way to know when the next one comes out is to sign up. Yeah. And we'll let you know about what books are coming up. So if you want to read any of them before we talk about them, uh, if we're doing anything else fun, if we're doing a listener Q&A, yep. if we're looking for you know topics or questions from you guys, that is the best place to find out. Any so. new sponsors and yeah. of course, the bonus content. Bonus content. It's true. So before the episode starts, typically Nat and I are bantering about something, sometimes even during the episode that Andres turns into bonus content. Yeah. And then he cuts it out because we go <laughs> we go off on like tangent tangents. <laughs> for, tangents off of tangents. For 10 minutes. And Andres is like, all right, guys, we need to <laughs> we need to put this somewhere else. Especially when we're drinking. Especially when we're drinking. Well, drinking mushroom coffee or drinking alcohol. But <laughs> mushroom alcohol. You need to team up with Four Sigmatic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mushroom lager. Ooh, actually, that sounds pretty good this is like that sounds like it should be, like it could be yeah that sounds like it could actually work dude if you told some like sort of like a coffee stout if you told some like white girls in miami <laughs> that that would you know be great for them that would definitely what white girls were you talking to in miami honestly white Cosette. guys in miami <laughs> I... <laughs> I'm just for saying, context that just got back from miami so <laughs> that that is the that is the st- <laughs> <laughs> that is the starter demographic for nonsense health products. That's true. If you if you hit it out in the park with that that demographic, you're yeah. doing pretty well. 
Yeah. I actually saw, speaking of Force Sigmatic, I saw Force Sigmatic in a girl's hinges pro- hinge profile uh, recently. Yeah. Like she works there? No, or she doesn't work there. She just likes their coffee? Yeah. Well, so Hinge lets you connect your Instagram account. Oh. And I've noticed that people who take advantage of that feature tend to have very active Instagram accounts. So I saw in the most recent post that she had, it was like talking about her morning routine or whatever, right? And she's apparently trying to be an influencer. I was going to say, are you like trying to get in with... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> she probably has a similar deal to what we do, <laughs> some affiliate deal. <laughs> but it was something, it was like the think friend. I like that you're using your Hinge hookups yeah. to uh, <laughs> promote our sponsors. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I just saw them on there and I was like, Oh, easy icebreaker if she matches with me. <laughs> Too <Yeah>. funny. <laughs> Did she match with you? you- I, I, that was today. So I have no idea if she's even seen my profile. Oh, okay. All right. We'll, we'll follow up. We'll next follow up week. next week. I'll let you keep you guys posted on this saga of. So, yeah. Listen to the end of the episode to find out. <laughs> yeah. What if you marry this girl? This would be amazing. <laughs> that would be amazing. Four Sigmatic should sponsor our wedding or something. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, free mushroom beer for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. And I think. What else? Newsletter. Leave a review. Yes. Review on Amazon. Not on Amazon. <laughs> or, yeah, not on Amazon. <laughs> Leave a review on Amazon for all of our sponsors. Leave a review on iTunes for us. Yes, definitely. If you enjoyed this show, please leave us a wonderful five-star review. If you did not enjoy this show, then I'm amazed that you're still here right now. <laughs> yeah. But don't leave bad reviews. <laughs> Honestly, if somebody hated the show and is still listening, I'm kind of impressed. Yeah, that's that takes some effort. That's a commitment. Some skin in the game right there. Yeah. They're, or maybe they're just like working out and they're like, oh, these guys make me so angry. <laughs> you know where I think we're probably very popular? Middlebury? The Middlebury Gym. Ah. Uh. <laughs> Middlebury students love us. Especially in the gym. It's workout fuel. Especially in the gym. Dude, nobody at Middlebury goes to the gym. <laughs> There's no gym at Middlebury. There we go. Here's another one-star review. <laughs> <laughs> Just hanging out, sipping their vegan smoothies. <laughs> uh, All right, we'll stop there. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us... Newsletter. You can respond to the newsletter. Yeah, or, or Twitter. Twitter's good. Yeah, we've heard from more and more of you guys recently, and we love it. Feeds our ego. Does yeah, it makes us. Also gives us good recommendations. Honestly, like I love the book recommendations people send. Book recx uh, feedback on when we do stuff like the listeners' choice episode. Yeah. Or- those are we honestly experiment a lot with the show. You know, we're still in the first. Well, we haven't even gotten to episode forty yet, right? So I think this is around forty. This this might be forty. Yeah. yeah, we're somewhere in that range. Anyway, so we're still in the experimentation phase. We try out a bunch of stuff. If you like it, tell us. If you don't like it, definitely tell us. Don't necessarily tell iTunes, but tell us. Tell us. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I'm at the rail Neil S. I'm at N-A-T-E-L-I-A-S-O-N. Nate Liason. Nate Liason, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> As so many people on Twitter think. <laughs> but yes, uh, I think that is all. Yeah. Go buy a copy of The Jungle. Listen to it. Uh, listen to the episode. Obviously, if you're here, you've obviously listened to the episode. Read the book. Read the book. Tell us what you think. And we'll be back. If there's something we missed... Definitely tell us because yeah. socialism and communism, as you can tell, are not our wheelhouse. Maybe we need to do like uh, Karl Marx, Das Kapital or yeah. something. I'd be down. Actually, I was thinking about that as I was yeah. reading this. I was like, because I realized how uneducated I am about, yeah. about this topic. Give it a week or two and we could do something like that. That'd be fun. How long is that book? It's short. It's a pocketbook. Yeah. Nice. All right. So it's not an Atlas truck. Not an Atlas truck. <laughs>
anything, honestly, reading any book after Alice Strug, I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, this is so short. Honestly, I, I had that thought after we, well, starting Elephant in the Brain. I was yeah. looking at the number of pages. It's like 420 or 415 or something like that. And I was like, oh, this is manageable. Yeah. I, I read it for an hour this morning and I got through like 10%. I was yeah. like, oh my God, <laughs> I read so much. Where's Atlas Strug? It's like you turn the page, turn the page, turn the page, still 1%. Yeah. <laughs> like going for like half an hour. You've been sitting there for an hour, you get through 2%. You're like, oh God, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> we need to pick a book for like september yeah we did get a started. long one yeah <laughs> war and peace <laughs> well i've started that i'm 100 pages in which means i'm not very far in another <laughs> <laughs> we need another long non-fiction maybe yeah oh seeing like a state we could do it's pretty long right yeah it's like i think i'm gonna say 500 600 okay. but it's dry though yeah so, that's what i've heard i've heard it's hard it's hard you can't read like 100 pages in a day yeah it's not gonna happen <laughs> so, all right we'll, we'll think on it yeah we've had a bunch of people tell us that though yeah. seeing like a state so if you have le- recommendations for long nonfiction books we should do let us know zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance has come up oh yeah that's not that yeah it's not actually that long like okay. seeing like a state would be harder to finish got that it. one anyway anyway if you have recommendations hit us up yeah we love getting those we'll get to them at some point thank you all for joining us we love having you here in spirit Yep. Drinking a rosé with us for another wonderful episode of Made You Think. Yep. Till next time. Cheers. See you guys. Thanks, everyone.